0: and get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MeatEater for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon.
1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number three hundred and one. And today on the show, Steve Vernella and Giannis Patelis are joining me to share the very exciting news about how and why we bought a farm. And then, habitat consultant Jake Elinger hops on for an audio tour of our new chunk of dirt. And now welcome to the Wired Hunt Podcast. As I just mentioned today on the show, we have got all sorts of exciting news. Lots and lots of exciting news. So here in a minute, we're gonna hop over to a conversation I had with Steve Vernella and Giannis Patelis from Meat Eater to discuss what in the heck we just did, why we bought a farm, what we're planning to do with it, and why I think all this is gonna be particularly interesting for pretty much all of you, including some very very cool giveaways coming up. So stay tuned for that. And then after that, we're going to get into a conversation that I had with Whitetail Habitat consultant Jake Ellinger earlier this summer to give you all an audio tour of sorts of the new property. We walked it with Jake. We're going to get his perspective, his first impressions, and all sorts of ideas he has for how we can start shaping this thing into something new. But first, let me just say this. I am super Excited about this new project. Over the last decade or so that I've been putting out content for Wired to Hunt, I've always kind of looked at myself as a guinea pig. You know, my job here has been to seek out the best experts and resources in the deer hunting world, learn as much as I possibly could from them, put their ideas to the test in the real world, and then report back to you on what's working, what's not, what I learned along the way. Now, I've been able to do this across a pretty wide swath of, of types of deer hunting. You know, I've been able to do a lot of DIY type hunting on buy permission properties, on small lease properties, done a bunch of public land hunting across different parts of the country. And to a small scale, I've been able to dabble here and there with some habitat work on a couple small spots, but I've never really been able to dive deep into private land conservation and whole scale land improvement projects until now. So with this new project, the aim is to guinea pig a whole slew of new ideas related to how to turn a tiny property into a killer hunting spot and ways that we can manage and improve the entire ecosystem from everything, from bees to birds to bucks and everything in between. So that is the game plan for this year. I'm gonna continue to hunt my spots by permission, keep hunting the Big Woods Family Deer Camp, got three out of state public land hunts, But now I'm going to add to all that, this deep dive into small scale land management. So really hopefully going to be able to have a little bit of something for everyone, really flesh out a whole wide spectrum of different ways to deer hunt, test it all out, and maybe pass something along to you guys that's helpful and interesting along the way. So that's what's coming up. Enough beating around the bush though. Let's just get right to Steve Ranella and Giannis Patelis and myself, to give you the full scoop on our new project. All right, we're back in another one of those front of the truck podcasts. I got Steve Ranella and Giannis Patellis sitting up here with me, and is we the have, front of the
0: truck podcast. Something that happens a lot. It kind
1: of yeah, is, sweet. yeah, because I'm always traveling around and inevitably end up recording here. It's the best podcast studio I have. So you think
2: our podcast studio is stinking up by the time <laughs> we're done with this thing? Yeah. We've been half in the rain for the last 4 hours. Uh-huh.
1: Yes. We'll be we'll be smelling it up, but we are here for a good reason. We have something exciting to share. Do you want to do you want to break the news? Like like you've got a really great line at the beginning of our video. The enthusiasm is spot on. We bought a farm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This farm. <laughs> that is it. We did buy a farm. And I want to tell everyone what we bought, why we bought it, what we're doing. So it's the back 40, but the back 40 is what we're calling it. What it actually is, is 64 acres.
0: Yeah. Underselling it by like a significant, by calling it the back 40, you're underselling it by 50%. Under promise, over deliver. Yeah. Right out the gate, we're surprising with how many more acres we have. <laughs> yeah. Instead of exaggerating the acreage, yeah. down selling the acreage. A modest, a modest, A half abandoned farm. Yes. In Southeast Michigan. Yeah. And it was one of these
1: things where, gosh, back in January or February of this year, we were talking through, you know, through this whole idea, how we wanted to try to do it. And it was funny. My whole life, I've always thought if I ever was able to go out there, if I had the means and the ability to go out there and, and get a farm. It'd be easy, right? It was just always about having the means to finally do it. And I thought, oh, you'd find this wonderful, amazing place, and then it'd be rainbows and butterflies, and your dreams would come true. Mm -hmm. So we finally came up with this idea, and in a way, we could try try to do this, and that was not the case. There have been few rainbows or butterflies. It's been a lot more challenging than I expected, but we did find it. We found the 64 acres. You mean
0: you felt it was challenging to find it?
1: Even just trying to find it was challenging.
0: Yeah. Trying to find it. I don't even know if
1: I told you this, but I think we spent several months looking for it, trying to find something that would fit the bill. We found several that we thought would, but we got sold out from underneath us. Oh. And Mm. I actually, the day I found out the property we wanted, it got sold. I was just
0: frustrated. How sweet was that place?
1: It was real nice. I mean, it was sweet. But I feel, I feel like we found something with similar pieces, at least. Yeah. Um, but that day, I found out in the morning. I looked again online. I'd, I'd spent so many days looking online, different portals and different real estate sites, and nothing else looked interesting within our general realm of possibility. And I thought, you know what? I just need to go take a drive and like burn off the steam and just look around. And there was one property I'd seen online that was not all that enticing, but I thought, well, oh, yeah, I'll go just look at it. Maybe it's different in person. And on my way to that property, I passed a sign here at this place. Had never had never popped up online before. Well, was it just like a sign nailed to an oak tree? Yeah, well, no, just a sign stuck in the ground. Stuck in the ground. That kind yeah. of thing. But I was like, oh, what's that? Pull it up on the map. Huh, that looks interesting. And lo and behold, here we are. So a little bit of stro- stroke of good luck led yeah. us to the back 40. And here we are now. We bought a farm. And what we are trying to do at a high level, and you jump in here, Steve, but at a high level, we are hoping to showcase what can be done on a small property like this, whether it's in Michigan or Missouri or South Carolina or Nebraska, when you're trying to have great hunting, in particular deer hunting, but also looking at a bigger picture point of view as well.
0: Yeah, just wildlife in general. Yeah. And deer. And I think that... uh, when you get a place, I mean, it's easy to imagine, uh, you know, if you have hundreds or thousands of acres in the Midwest, like it's easy to imagine that how things take care of themselves. But it's interesting to look at something on just like the micro scale of just like uh, what would be regarded as a very achievable chunk of property for a lot of people. Yeah, Definitely not everybody. There'll still be like a huge jealousy factor. Like, well, I'll never have something like that. But it's like, in terms of buying a piece of ground, it's big enough to do a little hunting on, big enough to see some impact from your labor. I mean, you you know, this is like toying with the threshold of of what that would look like.
1: Yeah, definitely it's it's interesting because I think there's a couple different storylines that we're, we're kind of exploring here from i mean we're, we're, we're documenting this whole thing in a whole lot of different ways first and foremost we have of course we'll be telling the story of what's happening in this property through the Wired podcast we've got a whole series of how-to videos coming out from it um, a bunch of different articles related to the types of things we're trying to do out here but then we've launched this new video series the back 40 in which we are telling that story as well and not just you know Showcasing what we're trying to do, but we're bringing in a number of different experts to help us try to understand what it is we have here and how can we best manage it for everything from bees to birds to bucks.
2: Yeah, I think the don't forget the squirrels and squirrels. Thank you. I don't you guys. know if we're gonna really. I
0: don't think you're gonna really manage for them, the squirrels. I, I is there anyone?
1: Does Kevin ever like? Would he know anyone to talk to who would give us ideas as far as what we
0: could do if we wanted to? I think if you planted corn and left it sit. That'd be good for squirrels. Okay. And if you and if you raised hell on these pine squirrels, I feel like that might be good for squirrels. But I don't know. I don't know. Who, who knows? You, you might see an increase in squirrels. But one of the more interesting things to me about doing a project like this is uh there's this there's this sort of idea in 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 people's minds, in a general sense, there's this idea in people's minds that the best thing for nature is always just to like leave it alone, right? You hear this all the time, and it's it's easy to imagine that just leaving it alone is the best thing for nature. Um, and in a lot of places, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, for instance, that's all that it needs, right? There are a lot of places that really do, in undisturbed ecosystems, leaving them alone is largely the best thing you can do for them, to let natural processes play out. It's like, great. But in a place like this, that ship sailed, man. That ship sailed couple hundred years ago, right? This is all manipulated landscape. It's been manipulated and then manipulated again and then manipulated again and changed and whole new plant species brought in. Everything's been everything's been messed with. And we should point out this is the middle of like
1: major agricultural land, right? Yeah,
0: you're like in the you're not quite the you're not in the suburban urban interface, but there are large urban areas within a couple hours drive from here. But yeah, you're just in. It's just an ag area, yeah. And things have been, you know, farmed half to death in, in a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, there's not that much. Uh, there's no big woods left. It's just wood plots and, and wood lots. And it's such a way that when you walk away from it, um, if someone walks away from it, it oftentimes just goes to pretty useless non-native weeds. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you walk around and just and kind of like look at the landscape, it's a lot of introduced species. It's a lot of disturbed ecosystems and and disturbed plant communities. And so when you realize that you're like, in a case like this, the best thing for the landscape, the best thing for the animals is to come in and do a new, more thoughtful round of land manipulation right? Like letting it sit isn't the best thing for it. Yeah. And in, in terms of just like increasing increasing biodiversity, making better deer hunting, making better turkey hunting, it's like you can do great productive stuff.
1: And I think there's these two trains of thought or these two parallel paths that we're following here with the Back 40. One is, right, for most hunters, buying a little farm is like the dream. Mm -hmm. right? Everyone kind of dreams of getting their own little piece of dirt and being able to mold that into whatever it is they've always dreamed of. So there's that whole storyline, which we're going to be showcasing for sure. We're going to get deep into the the white, you know, the whitetail geek kind of stuff. People really want to know how are you going to design food plots? How are you going to have great entry and exit routes? How are you going to run trail cameras? How are you going to hunt a small property like this with lots of hunters all around it and still maybe find a good buck or two? We'll definitely talk about that. That's not though terribly unique within the whitetail media world. What sometimes is a little more unique is looking beyond just deer. And I think that's the interesting thing is can we do story number one? Can we turn a little farm into a deer hunting mecca, but can we also do that while thinking about bees and butterflies and squirrels and turkeys and native plant life? Can we achieve both of the things? And why does it even matter to do that? Like those are some of the ideas that I want to explore that personally are like really interesting to me because I geek out about deer, but I like the idea of pushing myself to learn about the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, I think it's valuable because... Every day, more and more of the country um, is disturbed. It's bro- like the lands are broken up into smaller pieces. Generally, right? We're like generally going at, We, I mean, we. This is nothing new. We've been going it since we became a country. Of going toward increasingly fragmented places, and so I think that not that not that like we're pioneering something here, but I think that anything that can add to this, anything that can kind of add to build out a template. Of how to do small scale um, land management projects to benefit wildlife, and showing people that it can be done, what it requires to do it, the lessons of how how you can mess it up, how you can get it right to just generally improve hunting and improve wildlife habitat on small chunks of ground, because that's in in the eastern U.S. and in big portions of the and uh, big portions of the west. Like, that's how sort of the war for wildlife is going to be won. It's going to be won by people making decisions for wildlife. It's like making wildlife-based decisions, or at least factoring wildlife into your decision-making as you exist and work and live on, pro- on a property. Yeah. So something interesting we found while trying to, to research what we're
1: trying to do here, when you think about, at least a lot of times when I think about how we can do significant positive things for the natural world still here in the United States. Sometimes the first thing you jump to is our big wild public landscapes. And for mm-hmm. good reason, we have 600 plus million acres of that land. Um, but private land, these little small chunks like you're talking about should not be ignored because a, a number I saw recently showed that more than 350 million acres across the country are owned or leased by hunters. Really? So, just imagine, like, that's a lot of land that you can make a positive difference with. Hold
0: on. Six, so there's 640 million of federally managed public land.
1: Yep. And, and 350 the, million and half of private. Much, half
0: that much, again, of land that's sort of owned for purposes of hunting. Owned or leased for hunting. Owned or leased for purposes of hunting. So we as a it's hunting a, community. Yeah, have, like, that's a enorm, like an enormous uh, area for potential
1: impact. Yeah. So I think the, the the pie in the sky aspiration is is what if we could in some small way help inspire some small portion of that to to try to do a little more? Like we're gonna try to do a little more here and maybe we're able to share some ideas to help others. And there's a whole lot of million acres out there yeah. possibility. So that, you know, of course I'd love to see some big deer and I hope we do that, but at the
2: but the world's bigger than just big deer, the isn't it? The world's Mark? bigger than just
1: big deer, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that that does get me excited. So even while we've had certainly plenty of challenges already when it comes to trying to turn this thing into a hunting paradise, um, I still am excited about what we can do on that other side of things.
0: I don't think that I don't think that one needs to be and you're not, but I don't think one needs to be apologetic about wanting to. Uh, achieve good hunting or grow big deer on a property sure because you have to have there has to be like the incentivizing sort of like the incentivizing gateway to want to care anyway yeah i mean it's the argument if we're going to keep talking about like big western public lands a a thing that comes up is that people argue that those landscapes need advocates and you find great advocacy among hunters meaning there are a lot of people who like you know whatever on some big national forest there's a lot of people who like to hunt elk there uh sort of the goal is you create all these people who like to hunt it. And then those are people who are going to be inclined to advocate on its behalf and to watch out for it. Yeah. So I don't think that one, no, you don't need to be apologetic about, let's say you, you bought a bunch of land just to hunt deer. It's like, if you're going to do that and you didn't buy it just to subdivide it and put a golf course on it or build it into a bunch of condos, it's like, great. If that's what it took, the promise of hunting deer is what it took to get you to to get the place. Fantastic. Heck yeah. Because that allows it to stay like as a wildlife producing area. I own an, an, I own one quarter of two acres and half of point six acres. I own that land for like very uh selfish purposes. You know. Most people are not like in a position to um, buy big chunks of property. They're not in a position, they don't really have the desire to buy big chunks of property, set them aside for wildlife and then not derive some personal benefit and some interaction with it. Yeah. So if growing big bucks, that's great. If growing big bucks makes you want to go out and like buy some little chunk of ground and sort of like protect it for wildlife. Um, fantastic. If you can do even more on that without hurting that, but in, in, in addition to that, do more to, that increases biodiversity and that kind of like helps nature out in places where she might be a little bit struggling, you know, helping out in certain species that might be not doing too great and, and allowing certain like plant communities to thrive that might be sort of like gradually vanishing from the landscape. One of the things we talk about is like milkweed and yeah. monarch butterflies, right? You can have big bucks, you can grow deer, you can also do like cool things to create the experience of being out there, just more vibrant and full of life. If the gateway is is deer, I don't great. I, I personally, I wouldn't buy a property if it if it didn't have the if it if it didn't have hunting potential. Right. I just wouldn't do it.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, except for where my house sits, but then <laughs> it, I just gotta have a place to live. Yeah, anything beyond that, I'd be like, is it good hunting? If not, or could it could it be? Could it be? Is be. it or could it become? You know, and I definitely think what we have here is a A
1: a yes and. I I think it is decent hunting and I think it can be great. So we've got one of the criteria I was looking at was something that had a lot of potential. Something that was kind of raw, but that we would have the opportunity to mold. And I definitely think we have that here. But we are kind of leaving out a huge punchline of this whole project to this point. Because right, we bought a farm. We're going to try to manage it for great hunting, but also look at the bigger picture too. But then what are we going to do on it? Number one, other than hunting ourselves, we're going to do a giveaway, Steve. I hope you know about this. I know about it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to give away a hunt with you and me, and maybe Giannis too, out here on the farm. Yeah. So we're going to bring some fan out here to join us, check this place out. Hopefully it's going to be pretty great by then, and have a, a fun hunt during the heart of the Michigan hunting season. The 2020
0: season. 2020 season. What's that? Oh, oh.
1: 2020. 2020,
0: right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Give away a hunt for the 2020 season. We eat a bunch of wild game at night, hunt during the day. And then eventually, <laughs> what's sounds
2: wrong like, that? Sounds know? like a good time.
1: <laughs> Are you into that? Yeah. you up for that? For sure. Okay. And we thought about, well, we don't know what we're going to do yet as far as accommodations, but we'll figure out some cool place for us all to stay and, and have a good time. Hopefully see some deer. Oh, dude, definitely. We'll see deer.
0: Yeah. Just, yeah. There's a bunch of run around.
1: There are maybe not and
0: the one of your dreams yet, but this we're still talking no, about that by, way down the road. By, by then, next
1: by next year, the deer of my dreams will be here. It'll be living here yeah. somewhere. Yeah, and then what are we doing? Well, you tell. The, the <laughs> we're gonna give the whole damn thing away. Yeah, we're gonna give it away. Gotta stay tuned. The farm. We're gonna give the farm away. You're so gonna have to stay tuned. Remember
0: that saying I was trying to think of.
1: Uh, Yes, and now I'm blanking on it too. Uh, Oh, bet the farm. farm. We're not betting the farm. I was
0: confusing betting the farm with buying the farm. Give the damn farm away.
1: We're giving the farm away. We're going to share over the course of the next year how exactly we're going to be doing that. But I think the point being is that we're going to build something, hopefully that's awesome, and we're going to pass it on. And hopefully that will be a really exciting thing to share. And we're
0: going to squeeze some hunts out of it first. Absolutely. We'll have some first time hunters get a chance to hunt yep we'll have some hunters who have some challenges yep that's true some hunting challenges yep get a good hunt we're going to have someone someone who uh wins our hunt giveaway come out and camp out here with us and hunt it yep which would be fun and we're and they'll kind of they'll be in the driver's seat on that one yeah i mean they'll get the sweet spot they're gonna to get to go right to the honey hole, and uh, and then in the end, Mark has to do all his work, and Mark will have to uh, he'll have to walk away, as we've liked to say, he'll give the <laughs> give away the the keys to the gate, even though the gate's gone. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so, what do you guys think? You Giannis just got to see the farm for the first time today. Steve, you've now seen it twice. Um,
0: we tried to squirrel hunt it today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, we didn't do any good on squirrels, but then we pulled the, yeah, it was just, I mean, it's looking pretty good now. They're here. But Mark, the thing is, Mark's trying to not, he doesn't want to like overly uh, disturb it all out. So we gave it a good little push. Now we're going to go to our spot. <laughs> we pulled a trail cam that Mark had up and realized that while we were out squirrel hunting, there was a uh, fox squirrel out in the field. A couple of them, but no, we didn't, we didn't pull it together. Rained, it blew wind. It's not really a, you know, if you were going to buy a, this is more of a deer property. Definitely not a squirrel farm.
1: It's not a squirrel. Deer and turkey. There's not your great big wide open timber, bunch of oaks. We've got a series of old ag fields that used to be farmed. They've been out of production for two years.
0: Has it been two years?
1: Yep. And then big and the brushy wheat, fence the weeds rows. take over. Oh, man. fast. Yeah. yeah. And then a big 25-30 acre swamp in the middle that connects into a larger system across our neighboring properties, and then a thick, brushy cedar native grass swamp or not swamp prairie ridgeline. It's got some really cool habitat on it. So there's a nice diversity of different habitat types. Uh, There's turkeys, there's deer, there's squirrels, not as many as we wish. There are rabbits. There are lots of different bird Raccoons, species, possums, um, coyotes. Yeah, so we've been trying to survey like what do we have here now? How high a quality is the habitat now? It's raw at this point, but
0: we're up to 26 bird species. 26 birds,
1: something like 10 mammals. Yeah. Um and we're going to, you know, get to work.
2: I thought, that, I thought that was pretty interesting what I learned today that you told me about the uh, like the two major criteria you had when you were shopping for mm. the farm.
1: Which were those two that I told you?
2: That you would have a neighboring farm that doesn't allow any hunting or oh. <laughs> you would have a uh, swamp. It, uh, yeah. that that would And those two things you felt like are very strong factors to pro- possibly producing a big buck.
1: Yeah. So what I was saying was to try to find a place to hunt where you'd have a chance of seeing like a big mature buck in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things I look for. Like a big swamp system, something nasty that could become a sanctuary for deer where hunters won't go into it. Or, yeah, a place that just doesn't allow it. But I apply that not to buying a farm, or not just to buying a farm, but also even when I'm trying to get permission. Sure. Like, I will seek out big swamps seek and stuff. spots. Yeah. Yeah. So in this case, though, we had a part of that swamp on the property that was like a big flashing green light that got me excited. But then I was also looking for something that had, like, all those building blocks. This is kind of like a blank canvas. What I like about all the old fields is that, you have the opportunity to try a lot of different things. If it was nothing but 60 acres of pure, big, hard timber, it's a lot harder to manipulate a mature forest Yo, versus yeah. this
0: kind of habitat. Um, no, there's tons of room to do stuff.
1: Yeah. So, so that's what we're working with. We're going to show step-by-step-by-step by step by step everything we're doing. The new video series is launching. Uh, when this comes, I'll be launching next week. And you'll get to see from the beginning everything from trying to figure out what do we have here to bringing these different habitat and wildlife experts to then actually starting to try to do the work. And I've alluded to some of the challenges in previous conversations on the podcast, but always kind of loosely. I haven't shared the full uh, set of frustrations. But as you guys have probably gotten to know over the years that you've known me, I'm not the handiest. I don't have farming background. Uh, I
0: didn't have you pegged as a not handy dude. No. You're not handy? Not
1: handy. I'm trying, trying to get better. I didn't know that. But I'm not naturally handy. My dad was a computer guy. So I got that thing growing up, but I did not get like the hands on work stuff. So I'm just always struggling through it, trying to figure it out. I didn't know that. Yeah. So this has been like all sorts of struggling through type things, figuring out how to get this piece of equipment to work or how to get this thing going or. So we've had those things, but we're pushing through it. We're making some progress. Our first set of habitat projects are in the books. Very small steps so far, but we have something. And the first hunting season, when we just did the whole squirrel thing. Deer starts in two weeks.
0: Yeah, and then next summer, you can just, like, kick it and hike Oh, yeah, starting this winter. Starting this winter. Yeah, it's going to be a lot. And it should point out, too, that this is an area, this is an area in Michigan that, produces some big bucks it is yeah i mean like right around here
1: yes that is very true and 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 that was one of the other things i did look for was trying to find when you're looking for a small property especially and if deer is one of the things that are most important to you a very very helpful thing is to be in the right neighborhood kind of like generically talking about the zone where there's other people that might be on the same page as you as far as management efforts so that was another thing i looked at was trying to get to know like who are the people around here are other people interested in managing for wildlife and deer? And I was able to talk to friends of friends and do a little snooping around and chatting around, and found out that there are some neighboring landowners who are in the same kind of yeah same kind of page.
0: Well, for perspective, how big how big was the buck, and how big was the property that you got the buck on last year?
1: So I killed a five year old, one hundred sixty five inch buck last year on a what size property? Eighty nine acres, but. More than half of that is just wide open field, so really it's like 40 acres of huntable land. And
0: you knew, and that buck was there, and you knew he was like living in there.
1: Well, he was living somewhere else, and I saw him like once a year until last year. Then all of a sudden, he showed
0: up for a month and camped out. Camped out. But that's like that's that's like a comparable kind of thing here. Yeah. So like you can make a spot. It wasn't like it wasn't accidental that he settled into that zone.
1: Yeah. Well, what I was telling you, honest, earlier today is like that has been a, a neat little microcosm or a, a small example of what might be possible here because on on that little farm I'm able to do just a tiny little bit of habitat work in a couple of spots that don't mess with the farmer's property with his land you don't
0: own, you don't own I don't own or, it
1: I just yeah. have access to it um, but what I do what I do have control over is you know when it gets hunted and so by you know we talked about this gun season sanctuary idea I do a number of things like that to try to make this property really hospitable to deer at certain times of the year. And I think over the years that has led to the general population of deer in the larger area getting, you know, a, a more, more, uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for here? A higher age class across the board. There's more older deer. There's larger deer. There's, I think, you know, in, in small micro ways, I've been able to make a positive impact there simply by making a handful of decisions. But yeah. then when you have something like this, where it's all fair game, that, kind of success with so little control gets me so much more excited for what could be possible here when anything's possible. Um, but we'll definitely have challenges. I mean, 64 acres, I mean, it's it's, it's it seems like a lot to me because I've never had anything to work with like this. But on the grand scale of things, it's it's pretty small. The deer aren't really living just here, right? They're all yep. over the neighbors too. We just need to try to create something that all you know, deer, turkeys, et cetera, will find the, the sweetest spot in
0: town. Yeah, well, I think... you're yeah. Just a kind of a final thought on it, man, is having been involved now in sort of the business of hunting television for a long time, uh, one of the top conversations I have with people um, who like to hunt and then they sort of look at representations of hunting from magazines and representations of hunting from TV shows is that they're often like seeing a world – they're seeing a world that's not their world. Meaning that they're, they're watching people hunt these like, like giant leased properties or hunting, you know, up in the Arctic in Alaska or whatever. Right. And it just doesn't look like, it doesn't look like what they're doing when what they're doing is they're out pursuing their passions on again, like modest, small patches of ground. Yeah. Right. Down, like the property down the road, the property across the road, their uncle's little place, right? Like that's where if you want to talk about just like nuts and bolts American hunting, that's where it's taking place. Yeah, it's it's people hunting white tailed deer on little shit and chunks of ground. Yeah, is what it is. And so let's talk about that for a while, right? I mean, like everything you can show all this stuff that's like aspirational. It's great, and I engage in it too, man. We do all kinds of aspirational stuff. But like at a point, yeah, let let's like examine that thing that might at the, from from. That might, to some people from the service level, be like, it's not that exciting. It's not that interesting. It's just a small patch of ground. The bucks aren't, you know, so far there's no like boon and Crockett bucks. But it's like, okay, sure. But that's what we're living in, man. And that's what most people are living in. So let's let's kind of like show and discuss and kind of explore a very real world for most people and see what you find out.
2: Yeah, You should add in celebrate because that's a yeah. pretty uh, special thing to have.
1: That's very true. So what we're going to start today is fleshing out a picture of what it is we're doing here. And after we end this little introduction chat with the three of us, we're bringing on Jake Elinger, who's a habitat consultant who was one of the people that came out here and toured the property with us earlier this year. And he's going to help us to kind of, kind of give you a audio tour of the property. And sharing cool. with you his thoughts on everything he saw and ideas for some some steps we could take to move in, into this new direction. So that's the rest of today's episode. That's what we're going to talk about. If you're interested in what we're what we're trying to dive into here, if you go to the dot slash back forty, you'll be able to eventually see maps of the property, some of the all the content that we're creating around it, and all sorts of the, the video series, everything we're talking you about. You we'll sign be up there. to win the hunt. You can also do that right now as of today at themediator.com slash win a hunt. That will take you right to that sign up as well. So,
2: I'm guessing a good way to stay abreast of everything that's going on here at the back 40 would be to sign up for the uh, weekly whitetail newsletter. The whitetail newsletter. newsletter. There you go. Very good.
1: Yep. Same place. You sign up at that
0: link I just mentioned, you'll be on the newsletter. So,
1: smart thinking.
0: And when you win this hunt and you shoot your buck, I will make hot buttered buck nuts for you
1: who could say no to that yeah
0: i will cook uh when you get your buck, mark's licking his lips right now (laughs) they'll even have a dough tag right yeah yeah when you get your deer i'll cook every damn thing you want to eat and some things you don't want to eat off that deer (laughs) and with that we'll let
1: you go thank you Stephen and for coming out here checking it out and uh we're gonna have some more adventures out here soon thanks mark thank you mark Alright, so we are doing um, one of these on-location podcasts, but we're not in a cabin, we're not in a house, we're actually sitting on my back deck. I'm here with Josh Furter-Hilliard and Jake Elinger. We got a nice view of the bean fields and stuff behind us. Um, There's been a lot of does and fawns feeding back there, so five bucks to anyone who sees (laughs) a doe feeding out there while we (laughs) record a podcast. All
3: right, I'm just going to be watching for
1: deer the whole time. Yeah, I know. Um, But what we did... Today was a lot of fun as far as what I'm concerned about. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode of the podcast. What I'm hoping we can do here is do like an audio version of what Josh and I just got to experience with Jake. Which, thank you Jake for doing, uh, for spending the time you spent with us today. Walking our new property with us. Um, you're welcome. If if any of your clients get the kind of which I'm sure they do plus some if they get the kind of like in, interesting insights and advice and recommendations and and enthusiasm like we did they're in for a treat uh, I was telling Josh on our drive back probably my favorite thing about spending time with you in the woods whether it be this property or when we toured yours it's like just your genuine excitement about it just gets me even that much more (laughs) excited (laughs) because i can tell how jazzed you you are about it oh yeah the the uh, the the opportunities you see in places and that is cool um so that's a special thing
4: well thank you you know i i often struggle with do people see the vision that i do and i know a lot of guys that hire me don't that's why i'm there but for me you saw i can walk into a place and i can see in my mind, what it can be. And that's why I get all jacked up
1: about it. Cause yeah. I just
4: know with a little bit of TLC, a couple, three years of time, man, can this be a great place to hunt.
1: Yeah. You know? And that's, that's, you know, that's what we were looking for here today was, right. We, we, we bought this new property in, in Southern Michigan. It's 64 acres of raw potential from what i saw when i eventually first scouted out and picked it and we were able to purchase it and i've had all these different ideas and all these different visions in my head and and things i want to do or things i think we could do or things that maybe we could do but i'm not sure how to quite pull it off um but to this point it's been mostly just me and a couple other people i know that have been able to really take a look at it i was really hoping for an outside new perspective on it like was I right in the ideas I saw, the opportunities I saw? Are there some other potential red flags that I didn't catch? Um, how would somebody else approach this? That's Those are the questions I've been having. And I want to bring someone like you in who has that kind of skill set and, and just a long background of experience to pull from to take a look at the property and say, these things look good these things not so much here's some different ways to think about improving your food source here's some different ways to think about improving your bedding this is how i think deer might be using it now this is how you could change that here's some things to think about from a hunting standpoint i mean that's that was like my dream situation is if you were able to come in and share those kinds of ideas and, and that ended up being exactly what we did we walked all over the place stopped in a lot of different locations and kind of broke it down um so my idea for this conversation now is let's rewalk our steps. Let's park our truck at the front of the property and walk through it again and talk about what's of interest. And just we'll dive into more detail now than we did uh, earlier today when we were just walking about with the uh, video cameras and chit-chatting. So, sure. Yeah. So we pulled into the parking lot. It's not really a parking lot. We pulled into the drive. I've got a lousy screen that I tried to plant at the front of the farm to try to block it from the road. It's 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 actually one of the best on the property, so it came in okay. <laughs> and with some nitrogen, I think we'll be able to give it the boost and it'll work. But we started out in that front field. We call it field number one. It's basically, the property kind of looks like the state of Oklahoma a little bit. If you imagine like a pan, it kind of looks like a like a pot almost. And the panhandle is where the property starts. That's the road front, which is the narrow portion of the panhandle there. That's field number one. And it's a big brushy field, overgrown with all sorts of stuff and then thick, nice fence rows all around it. So we started walking down the north property border. I've got a little uh, two-track kind of cut in there. Just, I guess, give me your first perspectives on what you saw when we started walking through that portion of the farm.
4: Well, what I liked was you've got the really neat, what I'll call the traditional old fence rows. They're quite wide, probably five to 10 yards wide, big trees, cherries, some oak trees, some hickories, things like that in there. And then you've got you know kind of this patchwork of fields that at one time were cultivated, but are not this year. Yep. So, you know, there's all kinds of good natural bedding already in there, goldenrod, pigweed, uh, ragweed growing in there. There was a lot of natural food sources and good cover right now the way it is. But because of that, your access is a little bit tight because you're in that, when you say, you, we enter into the panhandle. So it's yep. narrow, you've only got one or two choices. Where can I walk? so you pick the north fence rows? It makes as much sense as anywhere. And as great as it is with some cover and opportunity to food for food, that's the last place you want to put food. Yeah. you're in and out of there. you park there. I like the idea of your screen. I think if you get some two things, uh, hit it with some nitrogen, and then maybe go back in with a broadleaf killer. And knock off the competition. I think yep. you'll still see it be five, six feet tall good. for the years over.
1: Yeah, that'll be and that'll be good for you. So yeah, pull in yeah. there and be hidden. I do think that it's as much when I originally got on here early in the spring. I was like, well, this is up front in the road. There's not going to be much activity. But now with how well all that goldenrod and everything has grown up, oh, I mean, it's yeah. once you get just back a little ways. I mean, it feels quite secluded. Yeah. yeah, yep. I think at a minimum we'll be able to do a lot of doe hunting up there, don't you? Oh yeah. You, you pointed out a couple things when we were there, like the high spots versus the low spots. Um, can you touch on a little bit of that? How you thought deer might, you know? Yeah, so we to that? we walked maybe I don't know
4: 150 200 yards heading east along the north border, and we came to what I'd probably guess primarily the high point in that field, and it was a nice little nice little flat shelf. And so, typically, because of wind and uh, just the way air moves in high ground, deer like to cross where they can have the best ability to have their noses work for them. And then directly east of there, maybe 50, 60 yards, was a pretty good, nice little low spot, which, again, depending on the conditions, the wind direction, things like that, deer are going to cross and utilize that as well, too. So there's two neat little spots right there where you're going to have encounters with deer. Yeah. And then when you came to the corner of the very first foot, a fence row that went north and south, you've got a a gap to bring equipment through. Yeah. And what a place to kill does. Yeah. And we hadn't been there five (laughs) minutes. Yeah, right there, basically. And we, what was it, three, four... There was a couple, three a fawns, fawns there and those, yeah. yep. and they were just in that tall golden rod and all that pigweed, and they weren't five or 10 yards away from us. It was
1: really cool. we yeah, were just you know? standing there talking, all of a sudden, so, they jumped up and ran away. Yep. So,
4: so I, I think long-term, depending how long you own it, you might consider into the core of that first field, the food source was some screening all the way around it for like early season and late season yeah. doe harvest, but it would require your
1: screen to do really, really well, yeah. so
4: nobody from the road can see what you got going on in there.
1: So, okay, so how far across do you think that, like, the panhandle from north to south, so the narrow length of that panhandle, how far, do you think that's 100 yards wide maybe? Oh, yeah. yeah so somewhere around on the whole yards, yep. Yep. So how far do you think from our access trail would we need to put that food source? If we were going to get in a food source there, a screened-in little plot, which I did th- I have thought about that, I'm like, can you get that in there? It would be nice to have a little something up here. How far away do you think we have to get that? That we could quietly get in and out. If you have a good
4: screen, and, and it would require two screens, one along that trail and then one also on the inside edge of the food
1: plot. Yep. Okay.
4: 50, 60 yards.
1: Okay. So you could definitely get so, in there then.
4: So you could have kind of a long, narrow, hourglass shaped plot yep. in the center of that field.
1: Yep. And with the screens, plus yep. the natural golden rods oh, and yeah. all that stuff right. up there yep. seems to be real, real thick. That'd be, you know,
4: uh, you know, from a priority, there's lots of other things you can work on. But a couple of years from now, if you've got everything else working for you, that'd be a place to focus on.
1: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today
0: at your local auto parts store, or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver, And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
1: And another thing you mentioned, though, that could keep it low-key, but maybe just sweeten it just enough to help our early-season doe hunts was the idea of doing some strategic mowing through there. Yeah. Can you expand on that?
4: So you could go into the, that lower area. And across that high spot that deer like to cross, and just literally mow a four-foot-wide, winding trail through that high goldenrod and and pigweed, and maybe make a couple of openings. You know, think of a clover leaf with two or three, and and you, so you'll have that the exit trail go up. And then end up next to another fence row that's easy for you to access. And so yep. you do, and those deer are going to use those edges. They're going to use those internal openings, even though there's not food per se. You'll mow that. Something's going to come up. Probably some clover and a lot of volunteer stuff is yeah. going to come up. So you'll have green in there this fall. Yep. Probably yep. something four to six inches tall. Yeah. And deer are going to congregate in those openings. They're going to use those edges. I mean, yes, if you get real creative like... and just do some winding trail systems with some openings in there.
1: And And then have them ending where you want to stand location. Have them end
4: where your stands are.
1: I think that's a really easy way to just take advantage of that, of field one and field two really which are the two parts of the panhandle kind of that I, you know, like you mentioned access is the big question mark with a lot of things on this farm but especially there at the front because it's the the panhandle, it's a very narrow area I have to come in and out of every time I hunt I originally, okay, these first two fields that form the panhandle, I'm just going to not going to plan anything because yeah. I was afraid of spooking deer in and right. out. But I think this is a really clever way of, of still doing something that can help you just a little bit, just yeah. improve your chances of hunting up there a little bit. And I think there's no question that there are deer already up there yeah. using Oh, them. yeah. like We, were, we spooked some when I walked out from a scouting trip the other day in the evening, blew a bunch more deer out of there than I realized. Um, and, then, it, and it'd be an easy, quick project to do. Yeah. You know, some lanes
3: through the there it would be real simple yeah this
4: is the first week of august so if you know man if you just get in there in the next two weeks get that done i mean you're you're good to go yep and just keep in mind don't do any straight lines make sure those trails can deer can't see into an opening into where you're walking or where you're walking into an opening there has to be a big enough you know s curve in it or something to block their vision so when you are walking through
1: they're not able to see you that's a good point. Now, is that more? Is that mostly just for that reason, so they can't see you, or is there also something to be said about that encouraging their movement down the trail? It, a little it's bit?
4: twofold. One, so they can't see you, but secondly, when you do get bucks cruising, you know they use their eyes a lot, and if they can look out and say, "Oh, not any does in that little yeah. opening," but if he can't see into that opening, then it, it will force him, based on wind, to walk down around that curve, look in there, and he just might go all the way across and walk right through another mode trail you have going to a, a oak tree that yeah. you've got set up and you happen to be hunting there that
1: day and it can be Which is a good all you day, need. you know. Yeah. Um, okay, so field one, that's the story there. It's, it's mostly going to be our access and exit route. It's going to be a spot we can get some good doe hunts in early and who knows? I mean, a buck could come cruising through there. It could. But it's a safe location to get yep. to. Very easy to access. Very yep. nice
4: place to harvest does. Yep. You're not even in the, the property per se, yeah. you know.
1: Piece of cake. We found a really nice tree five yards off the road that we think Josh will hunt from. Yeah.
3: Yeah, we did I see one. <laughs> I
1: think that'll be a perfect <laughs>
3: location. Hey, I'll be I'll be sleeping in while you guys are uh yeah, getting I'm super early to hike all the way to the back. I'll show up just before daylight pop I like in there and
1: I like the fact that you can find the silver lining yep. in anything, Josh. Yep. Yeah. That's a good goes, quality. He? <laughs> <laughs> um So then moving to field two, very similar to field one in that it's this overgrown old farm field. I guess we should note like field one must have very high quality soil or something going for it because it it did have like the best growth. I mean, it was already above our heads in that field. So imagine the entire farm field covered in six to eight foot tall weed growth of all sorts of stuff, goldenrod. Yeah, you name Pink it, weed, it was in there. A lot of diversity in yeah. there. You move into field two. So we just got, like a like you said, a five or 10-yard thick fence row of just trees, cherry trees, brush. You get to field two. Again, mostly the same thing except for it starts to drop off down towards the bottom. And then on the neighboring property, you've got a small chunk of timber that connects into this field. Um, and then at the bottom of this hill is where our big swamp begins. Was there anything in field two worth noting outside of what we talked about in field Um, one? You know,
4: what I did like about field two was the topography change Mm -hmm. and the fact that just as you transitioned from field one to field two, there was that north-south fence row and that little tractor gap. Yep. And that's where those fawns were laying up high on the hill, probably for scenting conditions and other things. But again, just a perfect location for doe harvest. Mm -hmm. Easy in, easy out. Don't have to drive back very far to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and I do
1: think, I think for sure, there's going to be movement coming in and across there from that timber on the side of the ridge right. across our old field. And then if we do the food plot that we'll talk about in field three, right. that could pull deer yeah. across right through yep. there and use that the you know two-thirds of the way up the ridge kind of typical ridge-type yep. movement across yep. there you might see.
4: And the fact that, say, the eastern end of field two was the lowest... Yep. Level and that's where your swamp and thick cover sanctuary type environment was, I think there's going to be a lot of cruising opportunities. On the e- on, outside On the eastern end and, and the northern edge because of that thick cover that the neighbors got. Yeah, that's a good corner mm-hmm. right yep. there.
1: Yep. Um, would there be anything, so those two fields as of now, we're talking about mostly leaving relatively in touch, maybe put a little food plot in there tucked in there, maybe do some strategic mowing, Um but you saw the, the types of vegetation in there right now in those two fields. Diverse, a um, little bit of everything. Would you recommend or is it something not worth prioritizing trying to do anything to manage that vegetation there? Or is it pretty darn good as it is and it, you should let it be?
4: You know, for a couple of years, it's going to be fine. Eventually, other succession comes in and it will change. But, you know, maybe two years down the road. If you are uh, have people or have experience doing uh, back burning, controlled burns, yep. you can actually burn the debris and maybe do a very light disking through there. And man, it'll be up eight nine feet tall oh. again the following year, yeah. given given rain and the conditions sure. we've had right. this year.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's that's kind of some of the things I was thinking about trying to just revitalize, and then we'll talk some of the other fields that aren't as good. You know, we've talked about some other ideas, but I really do want to make oh. sure we.
4: One thing about those fields, in the early spring, when they're, you know, six inches a foot, 18 inches tall, that is a lot of deer food. I think people mm. totally miss yeah. how much good natural food is right there.
1: Yep, I, yeah, Old
4: fields coming back up, man, that's good early successional growth. Really Certainly, is.
1: the times I've been out like turkey hunting in the spring and stuff, they were hitting it. Yeah. They're yeah. in their feeding. Yeah, I There was, a lot, of, yeah. there was yeah. a lot of good food for them, so... That's nice to see. So we headed down that hill. We got to the bottom where the, the edge of the swamp is, but we continued on towards field three. And you get to this kind of big cr- cross intersection where you get the power line, which is the edge of the swamp, intersects with this two-track that goes down into the swamp. It crosses a high spot in the swamp that also intersects with the fence row coming down yeah and then there's a gap so imagine like a take a t make a t with your hands and then make a little gap right where those two lines come together imagine there's a little gap in the trees there that deer could come easily through back and forth along each line that's the kind of situation we have where fields two and three come together and i stopped and i said hey this was an area of interest for me do you see it too um can you describe what you saw and if you, if you agree with that at all?
4: Yeah. And number one, it's kind of steep right there. Yeah. Where it's heading to the east, going down the hill. And yep, there's a power line that, you know, it's been opened and the utility people keep it clear. And you've got a fence row that comes to an end and leaves a nice gap right there. And I think, especially during the cruising phase of, you know, pre-rut, what a location to get into. And it might even be a good evening stand in early season say the 10th to 15th of october yeah. given good conditions again uh, there's just a great edge there and because of the opportunities the deer to kind of show up from anywhere come out of the swamp from the east come from the west and that's the only gap they can go through
0: yep. Yeah,
4: it would be very easy for you to get in and out of that's, that's what i like yep. about it
0: access is
1: great and that yeah. that whole tree the whole fence row that comes up behind it is really thick and it's actually a big ditch in there and just a bunch of junk and tangled mess in there. Like, I don't see many deer wanting to cross that. They're going to want to come through that gap. Yeah,
4: I think they're going to use that Um, gap, especially if you take the time to mow it or something like that to give them a little path to walk through down there.
1: Now,
3: is there the barrier, like those uh, kind of brush barriers, have those in the, uh, has that been built up along that fence line too? Oh, like
1: we saw up towards the front? No, I don't think there's that. Like, Like Up towards the front of the property, more towards the beginning of that panhandle the previous owner or several owners back had like stacked a bunch of trees and stuff like that that doesn't continue there but it's just like there's it used to be a ditch it looks like they filled it with a bunch of trash and junk so there's a bunch of junk junk in there and then it's just tangled briars i mean it's i've never even tried to walk through it. it's like so nasty just for me to walk through it so i gotta believe most deer would rather not at least probably um so there's a nice big, I can't remember what kind of tree it was. It was a big tree. Was that an oak? Oak or
4: a big cherry? Yeah. I think it was a cherry
1: right yeah. there. That's it. Nice that we, big tree right that there. we all
4: looked at. So that, that's where you put the stand.
1: Yep. I think we could. The question will be can we get a, if we do a saddle set up there, I don't know if we can get a saddle tether around it because mm, it's yeah, so it was big. It is a big tree. So let's we'll look at that. Maybe we'll yeah. have to do a ladder stand or something to get around a big <laughs> enough tree like that. But yeah, easy spot you could sneak right into the back of it, climb in there, see into field three. Maybe be able to see the little. Or, I don't know. The food plot's pretty tucked down in there, but you could see. a good long ways. Hopefully, get some cruising along that edge. Also, deer might be coming up and down that uh, line of travel along the fence row that extends down the two track through the swamp too. Yeah. You know? Yep. Um. So those are. And those I think you'd also spot. be able
3: to see up into fields
4: four and five you could potentially. See across the swamp,
1: yeah, yeah to the other side. Well, it could
4: also kind of, um, you know, buddy up as an observation stand for you.
1: Yeah. Very, because, you know, very you know where so. it's
4: sitting and you can see right across your swamp in the fields three and four. So it could be a very beneficial stand for the right time of the year.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could totally see first couple of days of the season maybe even. Like, I kind of want to be in the action because yeah. you never know. Right. But at the same time, I want to just be able to see a lot of stuff being low impact. That's kind of just enough in there that I feel like there's a chance that something could pop out. While at oh, the definitely. same time I could see definitely. a lot of yeah. country. Uh-huh. And, yep. Not really be messing stuff and up. And when you
4: go to leave in the evening, when it's dark, there's no food around there. So you can exactly. just slip right out and not slip bounce right any
1: deer. Yeah. So that's the beauty of that spot. So the one downside about filming or recording a podcast outside of my deck in farmland is that when the guy who farms the farm right next to you decides to spray everything, right when you're recording a podcast, it just happens. Yeah. There so he is. <laughs> so we're going to get some Roundup spray on us or something here in the, uh, in the next few minutes, but... We'll be okay. So we saw that intersection point, thought that'd be a good place to hang a stand, and then I took you to field number three, which was this next field that is a little bit larger than one and two. It's another one of those overgrown farm fields. This one's not quite as thick as the others. There's some spots where it's higher, some spots where it wasn't quite as good, and you've got um, some mare's tail and different things like that. Um, But this is a location that... I thought it would be a good place to possibly put a food plot because it's far enough from that north access route that I didn't think you'd be spooking deer when you come in and out. Right. And I wanted to have some kind of attractive food source on the west side of the swamp so I'd have somewhere to hunt with wind directions you know, yep. on that side. Um, I didn't want to have to always go to the far side of the farm. Right. So I thought i got to have some kind of food source on this side to work with. So my original idea was to plant a pretty substantial food plot in that field, and I planted a screen of Egyptian wheat and sorghum and f- sunflowers and various things along the, what would that be, the western border um, along this neighbor's property. And he's got, there's like a barn and a garage and a bunch of junk and stuff there. And then even in one corner, you can even see the house. So I thought i need a thick screen there to block this whole neighbor's Yard and stuff visually from this field. If we're gonna do it and make this work from a food plot standpoint, the screen did not come in well at all. So basically, it's unscreened now. With that situation in place, if you imagine neighbor's house can see all these things, overgrown field, and then a swamp at the bottom of the hill, and I came to you, Jake, and I said, "Okay, now what do I do? Can I plant a food plot here? Should we not do a food plot here because of how vis- how visible it is by that neighbor? Um, what'd you think about that area?"
4: Well, you know. Lucky for you, you had a really nice little depression about two-thirds of the way to the south and close to the east side of the third uh, field tree. Yep. And it was low enough to where if you put food in there, the neighbor's never going to be able to see it. The yep. deer will never, you know, it must be 20 feet of train change there. Yep. And you're probably going to get a half acre's worth by the looks of it. So I encourage you to go in there and mow it, spray it, and plant some food in there. And that's going to really help that that stand that we just previously talked about in that gap because you're gonna get a lot of north-south deer movement right along that that fence row.
3: Yeah,
1: using that same terrain. yeah,
4: Yeah, they're gonna follow right along that thick edge and there's the food and that could be a really good spot. And I think you'll be able to get in and out of there real easy into that stand. Because that food is down over the hill, I mean, I don't think the deer will ever know you're there. Right, right. And, and so the beauty could, of it.
1: You could hunt the stand. We talked about the T-intersection. You could have a stand there and, and hope that you'll get deer traveling along the edge towards it. Um, we also talked about the idea of brushing in a ground blind just above the food plot. yep so yep. that you could access it from the back, slip in, and then just once you're in, you'd be able to see down the yep. crest. Into Come in the from depression. the west. Yep. And
4: that would be a great ground line Yep, that'd be pretty cool. Too. You know, probably wouldn't want to hunt it much. Yeah. A couple, three hunts. A couple times at okay. the right
1: time. Yep. And then maybe you could even hunt, we never even went to it, but the far south border there. Oh, yeah. On that yep. edge, you could probably throw a stand and catch deer moving out yeah. in that direction.
4: You'd have to, and then you could walk right up by the neighbor's house, walk, walk right the by here. His, his junk pile and go down to that <laughs>
1: stand. Exactly. And,
4: and not bother any deer.
1: Yeah, you know. Yeah. I think that's gonna be uh think that's gonna be a little better location than I'm even giving it credit for. Because I do think that deer there are gonna be some number of deer that are gonna wanna move out that direction, head towards those crop fields across the road. Natural movement would pull them out that way on certain wind directions. It might be might be a nice little sweet spot. It could very well yeah. be. Yep. Yep. And then that from there is just this big Swamp, And I described it to you as kind of the shape of a gourd, like one of those gourds, yeah. like a long handle on it kind of. Yeah. And um, so at the far northern side of the swamp is the handle of the gourd. And as you go farther south, it widens out into this big bulbous shape. So that's this big swamp. And we, we crossed the narrowest portion. So we crossed the handle of the gourd. We've got a little two-track that runs across a dry spot. And we got into the beginnings of that wetland and then we walked a little bit, Couple, we entered it into several different parts to look in what we're kind of looking at as a sanctuary. We're kind, I'm kind of almost entirely leaving the swamp as a sanctuary um, because it's 35 acres maybe of really incredible cover. It is good cover. And tough to get in and out of. Them. Very
4: tough for a human to get in and out of there without something yeah. knowing you just stepped in.
1: And I think that's yep. one of the biggest reasons why I liked this property from the beginning because it had that. I don't know what you think Jake, but so often when I'm looking for a property here in Michigan, just like when I'm looking to get permission or something, I always try to find a property that's close to like wetlands, swamp, something like that. Or or another thing could be like a farm that's off limits to hunting or something that's going to protect a, a buck to maturity. And oh, I yeah. feel like a big swamp is one of those things that can oh, get deer to maturity. Cause they can hunker down there during gun season and survive the orange army. So when I saw that, I was like, right there. That tells me there's probably a mature buck around here mm-hmm. because he has that. Um, so tell me what you thought about what that looked like, the how you would be using it, or manipulating it, or leaving a touch, or just what you are know, your thoughts.
4: It uh, where we entered uh, first, you know, it, it was kind of thick. And there were some cherry trees and you've got an invasive buckthorn we didn't talk about, but you've got some buckthorn. But once we, you know, that was 10 or 15 yards and it went into reed canary grass with some, uh, there were some dogwood edges, but there was a very natural deer trail right along the cover where it was dry enough to not be wet and they're keeping them from getting their feet soggy. Yep. Okay. A lot of trails going in and out of there. And so I saw that as a great location. There was a couple of cherry trees that you could put a stand in, and that would be more of a rut period stand to watch deer and probably with a south and a southwest or west wind yep. that would then be more on the east side of that swamp trying to use their nose to scent check what's laying or using or crossing that swamp, trying to cut trails of does, and then those deer would come right by you in that stand. Yeah. And you would actually be hunting you know, just into the to the edge of the swamp but you'd be up in a nice high tree, you know, that's part of a big old fence row right there. Yeah, And it's it's kind of a natural pinch that's formed because of how everything grew right
1: there. Yeah. It's almost like if you imagine a triangle, like a right triangle. So you've got that yeah. right angle. And yeah. then you imagine um, you're holding your gourd. And then you take a right triangle and just jam it into the side a little bit. And so you got that angle cut yeah. into the gourd of your swamp yeah. that's sort of what's happened here yeah and that inside corner there of the right triangle that you pushed into the gourd creates that pinch that you have now yeah and deer want to move along the edge of that swamp the corner forces them around it which just i think becomes that special little focus of activity right Yeah, uh, i think you know again
4: when it comes to a you know that seeking cruising phase at 10 days of the year before they're actively chasing and running and, and all that that would probably be a high activity area of bucks cruising and through there.
1: Now, how do you think deer are using the, the gourd in general? Um... You saw, we didn't go way deep into it, but you saw a couple little points within yep. it. If so, you imagine it looks mostly like that I mean, throughout.
4: you know, some of it's wet. There's some there's some islands where you've got some maple trees and some cottonwood trees and some willows growing on. And then on the narrow end of the gourd towards the north, that's where it again became higher ground. Mm-hmm. So I think the deer are using that north higher ground. And then they're they're using whatever's dry, depending on the season. Yeah along the edges of where it's dry. And then probably when it comes to gun season, just because of pressure, you've probably got some little islands and things out there, some little clusters the size of this table, maybe twice the size of this table. And you're going to have deer using those just to get away from people.
1: Yep. So do you think that most of the doe... do you most of the doe bedding is happening like up in the hills and the fence rows and something like that? And right
4: up close, maybe right on the edge of yeah. your swamp, Yep. but right up close in that first 10 yards of cover yep. where it's still high ground.
1: And then bucks, do you think bucks even now might be bedding on some of those islands in the swamp or they oh, stand yeah. up?
4: I, I think there's some, yeah. you know, depending how many mature bucks you have right now. But of course, this time of the year, they're all pals and they're licking right. each other's faces buddy, and buddy. everything.
1: Yep. yep. So what about sanctuaries in general? What's your perspective on like this idea I have of leaving that 35 acres relatively untouched? Um, is that something you generally like? Is that something you recommend? I mean, I,
4: I love having a sanctuary. Having that area, you do not hunt, okay? But on the other hand, manage it, uh, clear out trails in the off season to know where these deer are moving, and then set your stands accordingly to be on the entries and the exits but you've got to have a sanctuary. You've got to have a place that the deer on that property that you're trying to advance to the next age class can go, get away from you, and get away from the other hunters, and still, you know, be able to have a pretty good life without a whole lot of stress and everything else. So,
1: so. the the argument from some people would say that's stupid to leave a pro- best part of your property untouched because that's where they want to move in daylight. Yeah. Um, what's your answer to that person? And though?
4: you know, there's. There's one or two days a year. I set stands. You've been in my place. Yep. I do go into my, quote, sanctuary. But it's just once or twice. And again, we're, we're hunting a high-pressure state deer yep. a little bit different here. And it depends what your goals are. And I think your goals are to try and move deer uh, that you used to be happy to take now and to advance them to the next age class. Yep. So if you've got a really good one, kind of a homeboy that spend a lot of time there, and you'd really like to see him next year, yep. then give him that spot. Don't don't go in there and and push him so hard that he leaves. Then he might go on the neighbor's property and get in a little trouble. Exactly. Um, but I mean, I love sanctuaries for what they what they are, and that is a, a safe place, a safe zone for does, fawns, and bucks of different ages. And I like that they offer you as a landowner opportunities to hunt mature deer as they come and go. But I'm a big believer in leaving them alone most of the time but it's worth taking the risk especially when you've got a buck that's on your list Mm -hmm. and he's and you're getting pictures of him coming and going then when everything's right go in and hunt him
1: yeah you know the hail mary shot yeah
3: from a from a management perspective you know talking about the sanctuary stuff in the off season doing some work I, i know you mentioned trails cutting some trails in there what would be like your number one recommendation in that area to do this off season, to I
4: would I would go in there in the off season and follow those trails, see where they go, and they're going some of them are going to lead into some really thick cover, and it's going to be so thick, it's you're going to see it's very hard for deer to move through there. So go in there and open those trails up to, you know, three feet wide, you know, two two and a half feet wide or so. Get them tall enough so that your tall-tined ten-inch bucks that you grow around here <laughs> can move through there mm-hmm. when they are in velvet because they don't like to mess up their antlers as they're moving around and clear that debris out of the way and then cut kind of some side spurs that go to some high ground for does to use. So they actually, you can just, you can double the amount of deer use in that sanctuary by opening up new trail systems. Maybe you, maybe the, the trail's got a bit of an arch curve to it and you, you cut a snaking trail that goes from one part to another and just adds a little another feature of movement. And so I do a lot of that in the off season, just cut openings and locations for deer to move freely, but
3: still give them all the cover, yeah. make them feel like, man, we're in here and it's yeah. great. Yeah. And then strategically ending those at points where we'd want to have a stand set up. Yeah. Right. Would up you direct
1: ours? those out towards... And,
3: you know,
4: yeah. any of those trails that, that you're cutting should be connected and eventually come by a location you've got a yeah. stand. And those are the stands that are easy for you to get into. You're literally going in five yards. You're in that stand. You haven't yeah, really entered, entered the sanctuary.
1: Yeah. yeah. So talk about how you think uh, these bucks would be operating during the fall or with that swamp. A little bit around um, how you imagine them using the wind to check what's happening in the swamp. Because we talked about setting you know, that little right triangle into the gourd. We're like, hey, we should yeah. put a stand there because they'll yeah. be cruising it. But why are they cruising it? What are they trying to do there? Because um, I'm always... I'm always interested to know on what, direct, what wind direction are they going to come this direction and what wind direction will they go that direction? Can so, you just elaborate so on that? So,
4: number one, we're, we're talking about a mature deer. And here in Michigan, I, I consider that three and a half and older. Some yep. might say four and a half and older, but for sure three and a half and older. And then a three and a half Michigan deer is pretty well pressured. Knows a lot about hunters, starts avoiding people, and also deals with a lot of competition. There's not near as many three and a halves here as there are in other states. So that puts him in line to be a breeder. Okay, active in the rut. So what that buck's trying to do is literally just be very efficient, cover enough ground, quick enough, so that he can go from one location to an, to the next. So he's going to use his nose most of the time. He's going to be downwind where he suspects does are bedding, or he's going to he's going to use a parallel trail along an edge of that swamp where there are doe trails that are perpendicular that are going crossing maybe the the uh reed canary grass and going up into those maples yep so there might be three or four places where does like to frequent so his goal is through that 150 yard walk that he's taken that morning he's going to cut four or five of those trails and hopefully come across uh, a doe that smells like she'd be worth you know going and checking out and in that process, he's also going to keep tabs on his competition. Some of these, now you start getting in your four- and five-year-old bucks, you know, they're in the top of the hierarchy, and they maintain, you know, their ability to, to stay at the top of that hierarchy. So they're pretty, pretty concerned about who their competition is, and through that process, they're making some scrapes here and there. They're doing some rubs. And that's says you know, say, and it's always on the downwind side. So under, you know, that last pinch point, that's ideal for west, south, and southwest. If the wind happens to be out of the north, then that buck's going to be completely over on the other side of that swamp, over on the west side of that swamp, and the south side of that swamp doing his cruising.
1: Because he wants to smell the wind going across to the wind. swamp to him. And, and,
4: you know, they're they're nomadic animals that don't follow the script a lot. But in general, you know, I'm just, because, hey, anybody who's hunted and watched, you're going to see deer that do things completely different than what I'm mentioning. But in the grand scheme of things, their goal is to get downwind and use their nose as much as possible. When you're in really good cover, where there's never a person like your sanctuary, they never run across human odor, then they start letting their guard down because it's thick, it's security cover, and then they'll do things called tailwinding and maybe not really worried about the wind for this 25 to 50-yard jaunt that they take through the reed canary grass where it's, it's kind of an opening. So the wind in one moment's from the north, and the next moment it's from the west. They don't, you know, they just, it's the right time of the year for them to take a risk because they feel like they can. But you won't see them do that in open field, that
1: type yeah. of thing. So when you say tailwinding, you're, you're saying walking somewhere with the wind actually coming from behind them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we checked out that little right triangle in the gourd, checked out the sanctuary, we talked about the sanctuary. You know, one other thing on the sanctuary standpoint that should be of note, and this is something I've talked about in the past, but I'll bring it up just one more time, because you asked about it while we were walking through it, was <laughs> if I planned to use my gun season sanctuary idea in there, which which I do, um, and, and it sounds like you've maybe done something somewhat similar, heard of at it. least, the idea of leaving almost the entirety of the property almost untouched during the gun season now i know some people want to hunt during the gun season that's fine and and i sometimes go out a couple days but i've kind of found the most valuable thing i can do during the gun season is make my property the safest place around because all of a sudden you get tons of hunters everywhere else coming out every deer rushes to the one place there's no one bugging them if that ends up being your property all of a sudden you've done two things you have a better chance of the bucks that you are interested in killing surviving long enough that you can be the one that gets to hunt them the most. I'd much rather hunt my buck when I'm the only person around for 640 acres versus when I'm one guy of 50 other guys that are in that 640 acre block. So 50 I'd rather, might be uh, Yeah, that might <laughs> on be low side. Balling, depending on where you're at. So one, it gives me a better chance to have that mature buck to still hunt in a more controlled environment in December, late season with my bow or muzzle or whatever. And then number two... I think you have a disproportionate impact on the larger population, as far as what bucks can make it to the next age class. If all of a sudden you can have the place that all these bucks come to for safety, all these year and a half olds and two and a half year olds and three and a half year olds, and you're not gonna bother them in there. All of a sudden those bucks aren't getting killed that might otherwise, if you were hunting and walking in and out, bumping all these deer off your farm, now they're going everywhere. And everyone else who is out there, who wants to shoot them all, all these deer get killed. So just by leaving my place untouched for a couple of weeks, I think I can have an extra large impact on the quality or an age structure of deer in the general area by giving them that safe spot. So I, I do that on a lot of my properties, not saying I'm not ever out there. Um, I'll still make my presence known every once in a while and you know, gotta be careful. But low impact. Low impact. Yep. Um, and I think it really helps. Uh, you're doing it j- just the way I
4: try. i try actually do the same thing. You know, my place becomes a real sanctuary from gun season on
1: yeah it's uh yeah if 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 you're willing to sacrifice a little time now it's of course it's a good time to kill deer so i understand people want to get in their deer run around all over the place mm-hmm. and it's it a is. fun tradition and get that but if you have somewhere where you're willing to lay off it's it's a very it's it's a little trick to really yeah. improve things i think
3: well i think jake you were saying this that you had a buck maybe move in was it, if it was it maybe last year yeah. The season yeah and just stuck around. And he's, yeah, he was the- a total stranger
1: yep. and he's stuck around. Yep. I've always wondered that. If you so, come in and you've got a really great situation, like, oh this, this is not nice. too bad over here. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah, yeah, And never ever got pictures of him. He was a whole new guy and he was, you know, fairly nocturnal. Did see him in daylight a couple times. And then all, you know, during uh march when they shed he was just, i was just getting pictures of him all the time wow and watching him grow this summer and now he's becoming a little more nomadic like they get at this time of the year yeah but he's still there and that's what's pretty cool so he didn't leave so pretty Is he so, one he's one so you're he, excited about yeah i am that's i'm good. pretty excited about him that's good yeah.
1: that's it's nice to have those <laughs> kinds of deer you get excited yep. about yep. so so we we left the right triangle of the gourd Man, I, I just got you're on fire with your uh, shapes as
3: descriptions between a gourd and a triangle in Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, all you're on. doing got a very a, good visual I'm, I'm waiting way to for, see what for you the, the listeners next. to see where we're walking. Shall so like, the next yeah. I'm gonna describe what Josh looks like. If you imagine lots of ovals our, <laughs> <laughs> no, so we we leave the gourd. We head up we head up into field number one, two, three, four, five. five. So we field five. So imagine your pan, your Oklahoma <laughs> pan. And imagine the way this should be oriented from like a north, east, west would be if you imagine the northern border of the property is the top of the panhandle top of your pan, your pot right there. Okay. Yeah. So field five is like right in the middle of your pot, kind of smack dab yeah. in the middle of that pot. So we entered that field. It's low where the swamp is and it steadily rises up a series of hills heading up towards the far eastern property border. And this is where I showed you our first food plot work we've done so far. What I essentially have tried to do here in the pot, you've got these two large fields. So imagine two long rectangles, the top of your pot, and then the second tier down is another field, same size, separated just by a thick fence row. My idea was to create a food plot system there that essentially looks like an hourglass, in one of those open fields is the top triangle of the hourglass, and then the pinch point of the hourglass is that fence row, because yeah. I thought, put a tree stand right mm-hmm. there in that middle, and then the bottom triangle extends down to the south into field number five. Yeah. So that was my idea with the food. I thought these locations, I, I thought to put the food plots there, because- You could, they were central enough in those fields that I thought I could access around the outside edges of the property, depending on wind direction and stuff, I would be able to get, I could still have a food plot in those fields, but be far enough away on those edges that if everything was screened properly, I could get in and out and move to a number of different places in the property in early morning or late evening, hopefully if they were in that field without them knowing it. At the same time I wanted a location that would be far enough away from the neighboring property lines so that neighbors wouldn't be taking advantage of that food or spooking deer off of that food. And the last thing is I wanted something that would transition deer in a somewhat predictable way across the right. property. Yeah. And my idea with that setup was that I, I wanted the edges to be able to move, but I knew there'd be deer bedding in the swamp and along those edges in that ridge system that we're about to get to. So I also knew there was a crop field to the far north and there's a crop field to the far south. So I imagine there's two lines of movement. There's the north to south movement coming, heading up to feed in one way or heading down to feed the other way. And then there'd be this east to west movement from deer in the swamp heading into the food. Yeah. So I oriented this food plot kind of north-south to kind of transition yep. across that. But I could intersect them coming either way. This is my high-level idea when I was kind of planning it out. So what I did this spring was I went in and I tried to do a no-till food plot screen planting in June, it failed miserably. So we got about 95% failure on the screen. Me and Josh just went in there the other day and replanted it. Most of that we replanted in a quick-growing hybrid sorghum. I don't know what we're going to get. I'm hoping for four or five, six feet. Anything will be better than nothing. So we're hoping these things will still be screened. I just don't know to what degree. Um, the two triangles of the hourglass are both situated in kind of little bowls or shelves in the hill so it's kind of a low spot in each one of those fields i thought that'd be the best place to place it within there because it'd be a shielded a little bit visually because of the topography b those little bit of low spots might have a little bit better moisture yeah um and then lastly i assumed deer would feel more comfortable probably staying in the slightly lower topography oh, a little yeah. bit uh yep, they're not they're not
4: silhouetting themselves.
1: Yeah. So with that like there's my whole mindset. That's what I've done so far. That's what I was thinking. I kind of outlined that to you when we walked up there yeah. today. Walk me through how much of an idiot I am or if that sounds good.
4: <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's a good idea and it's a it's a good location. The pinch point because of that fence row dividing your pinch point, super good idea. Um, might have a little excess issues depending on the season and how many deer are using that food. Okay, But generally, most of those deer should be in the, the large bells of your uh, hourglass versus being at that pinch point. But it's very good. And, and with screening, those could be great. And I think you said they were going to each add up to about an acre apiece, yep. right? So that's, uh, that's a lot of food yeah, for those areas. And it, and it brings your deer into the core of your property, too. That's what I like about it.
1: Yep. It keeps you away from all your borders. Yep. yep. Okay, So so seeing what I had there. If we took all that away, if I didn't, if I hadn't done anything yet, if you just saw those two fields now, or, or maybe even all six fields are yours to play with. Yeah. Where would you put your food plots, or well, what, what would you do differently?
4: I w- I would definitely, you know, food is king, and even though you've got food on the neighbor's property, you know, when you have food and you have a great sanctuary like you do, where deer are going to spend time and call it home, you you've got to have a very good food source. And you've got some natural food sources and some acorns, some mass crops, and that's good, but it's a short-term thing. Yeah. So I would have looked at very generally the same thing. I'd have looked at field four and five probably as my ideal locations for large, what I call destination food plots. Yep. Because it was far enough away, that number one, I wouldn't be going, walking by them, and I wouldn't be there all that often myself. Yep. And then I got to deliberately go in and hunt. Yep. And so, I, you know, I might have done a little bit different shape. I might have done two separate plots and just used that uh, fence row as dividing. Yep. But it probably wouldn't have taken very long to hunt in there and figure out where that natural north-south movement is. And you're yep. probably more familiar with it because you've turkey hunted in yep. there. And I think it's going to work out real good. I mean, so you were not a
1: dummy. You did a real good job. <laughs> well, <laughs> might still be a dummy for yeah. other reasons. It's probably what you're, you're getting at, that, Josh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. Yeah, and I think, um, is there anything else, well, you did recommend one other spot, but would there have been, if, let's say, if if we, because another idea I had was, should I shrink those instead of two big triangles that become an hourglass acre each, should I have scattered really small ones throughout Like, have a little corner with a little one, a little corner with a little one. I ended up not doing that, but I don't know. Are there any totally different, like, shapes or sizes? Because we really aren't locked into this. No, Like, we could do something You know,
4: regardless uh, of—I mean, I'm an irregular shape guy. I'm not a square and rectangle when it comes to food plots, if I can avoid it when I'm creating them. Yep. Just because how deer naturally use the edges and things like that. But when when you—when you're—it's hard for the listeners to see, but when you're on that property and you look at some of the slopes— Southern exposure, which means they're going to get beat with a lot of sun. And then other slopes, you go, well, where can you plant a food plot where it would retain moisture? And you pick the two best places in both of those fields. Okay, And you also use the topography to hide those deer to kind of be in a bowl. It's not a deep bowl, but it's enough to hide them. And when you think about access, coming up that hill or going down that hill you'll be able to hide from those deer.
1: I think, I I think. So it's well thought
4: out, quite honestly, as far as where to put food, because that's, that can be your Achilles heel. You can be real successful growing food, but if it's in the wrong spot, you can't ever get in and get out.
1: And that's been like my big stressor, trying to like figure out the right way to place it in there to get in and out. And and so much of that was originally dependent on the screens. And now we just don't know what, how that's going to pan out. But I do think, through most of the spots, as I imagine, like, walking around those edges and trying to get... There's pretty well covered between how tall the vegetation already is and the natural topography, like, the way you'll... Middle of the hills. But there's a couple spots where I see, like, danger zones. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when you come across the two-track, across the swamp, and you get to that intersection where fields four and five start. Oh, yeah. And if there's not good screening cover blocking that those food plots, oh, there, yeah. especially the food yeah. plot in four... If they can see right down to us, yeah. then I'm screwed. You, you yeah. got a danger zone. Yep.
3: yep. Is there anything like we kind of talked about up front with maybe mowing some trails? Is there anything that we should think about doing back there that might dictate hmm. yeah. some movement because there is to a, and from those food plots. That's the other thing we, we didn't may mention. be able to maybe keep them back further instead of up front where they may be able to see down. I don't know, maybe some micro plots or something that we could go you know, or you something? You you had a
4: couple of corners on some of your food plots. I said, well, here's a nice little bowl in this corner. Yeah, it's kind of close to your neighbors, but if you could screen it, it'd be a great place. But a perennial, it's always nice to have some perennials, and mm-hmm. not always focus on, on annuals. Yep. Um, but again, you know, you're, you're a new landowner. You're going to learn a lot of information yeah. this year, you know. And uh, you're going to find out how it is during the season, just really yep. what's going on. Take it one but, step, but at you time know, probably. I'm a trail guy. I mean, I mow trails to guide deer, whether it's yeah. in uh woodses that I've done hinge cutting and TSI work on, or whether it's early successional growth. And even in my soybeans last year, when the soybeans got really tall, I, I, may, I mowed these trails and the deer followed them, you know, just like they were yeah. highways, and it worked out real good. Yeah, so uh, you know, deer are pretty lazy and they take to those trails really easy, so you know. The trouble is getting in and getting out and not not running into those deer into those trails. We we try our best not to have those encounters with deal deer where we're walking. Yeah, you know, can't eliminate all of them, but I don't try to plant food where I'm going to walk for access. If I've got to get to a stand somewhere, I'm trying not to go down trails that are planted in food and that sort of thing yeah
1: and and you brought up a good point in that i never really described fields four and five like we're talking about putting a food plot in there but you gotta remember even though four and five aren't quite as thick as field one we're still talking i don't know belly to to chest chest high tall weed growth like almost to the entire field so it's not even like you're planting something when when i say a field i think a lot of people think like a clover field. Like right. It's not open. Yeah. It's, it's like you're, you're carving in a little opening into what's eventually going to be hopefully shoulder-tall walls of vegetation.
4: It, it, you're going to have so much edge once you create those food plots, and those deer are going to feel very safe in there. So, yeah. so even though you, you didn't have your screen work out, you're, there's a lot of good things that are going to happen because you're carving into something chest high.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the big, the big, I feel really good about how it's going to look through October but once the leaves all come down and that stuff dies that'll be my big question mark is at what point or how well does it still yeah, serve and the, that function and the
4: first heavy wet snow is really yeah. going to be the going to show what's going on yep. Yep.
1: and that's going to be I think when we'll see okay here's where our danger, new danger zones yeah. are or this is how deer behavior is going to change um, another thing we talked about when we were back there excuse me was mock scrape locations either real scrapes or mock scrapes yeah and there's a lot, like you said, lots of great natural edge already where there's going to be natural licking branches, deer are going to be naturally moving through, they're making scrapes. But then one of the questions I had for you was, you know, given how open it is in a lot of, relatively open it is in places, um... Should I be putting in more scrape trees or more mock scrapes? Different things to to move deer kind of the direction I want them to, or to stop them in the places that I want them to. There's lots of opportunities for that if we wanted to. Um, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, you know, when it comes to mock scrapes and whether it's limbs
4: that you pull down and and the grapevines, gosh, there's ropes you can buy online. There's all these different methods, and and they all work, you know, relatively well. But it really is about location. I seldom put a put a mock scrape somewhere to change deer movement. All I'm really trying to do is concentrate and slow down deer. So it's got, number one, it's got to be the location. If you've got a location where there's frequent deer activity, and that could be, you know, all does and fawns and bucks of different age classes, then having a mock scrape in there is going to buy you more time, going to have more activity, and it becomes that place, that that mature buck, all of a sudden goes and either scent checks, down, gets downwind of it, mm-hmm. or visually goes up to it and works it because of all the other deer that leave their calling cards there. Yeah. And I've watched that change with, you know, big time, with areas where I didn't have the scrapes and there was just one natural one and I have put three or four mock scrapes in there and now I got mature bucks in there during daylight because they're busy... Keeping
1: track of Big Louie. Yeah. (laughs) We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com
0: to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver and make sure to use code Meat Eater for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code Meat Eater.
1: You've got a somewhat unique uh, way of doing mock scrapes with sometimes hanging a rope or cord and then in some vines and stuff. Can you describe how you do that yeah, setup?
4: So let's say you're in a uh, some. Either the trees are too small or the timber's uh, big and mature, and there's nothing the right size for you to pull a limb down or attach something to. But you might have two oak trees or a walnut and oak tree that are, say, 18-inch diameter, 60-foot trees, and they're 20 yards apart. You can run two strands of wire, two strands of rope, fairly tight from one another. And those have to be up in the air probably like in that six to seven foot. And then what I use is, you know, plastic electrical ties, to either put oak limbs, basswood limbs, or grapevines. And I'll usually put at least two and dangle them and tie them up on, on both pieces of wire so that they have, they're fairly rigid and the deer can have some resistance and leave their scent on them. And if they're in the right location, usually where one or two trails or three trails converge or cross, you're going to get a lot of activity. Um, the ground should be fairly level. It should be open enough, open enough understory, not be so darn thick that they can't get in there and move. I mean, it's gotta be open if you've watched any area where deer scrape, they aren't gonna do it in real tight quarters. They've gotta have some openings and some areas where they can move. Okay. But I've had real good luck doing that with them. And then also, you know, just pulling a limb down at the right place on the edge of a food plot or a travel corridor or attaching a grapevine to a limb with some wire, just having it arch down and be in the right location from literally chest to shoulder high in that area, and it works real good.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's, because of how much edge on this farm there is, I feel like there's a great opportunity for some smart mock scrapes. You do, you do. And again, you got to
4: think about where can I place those so that when I'm accessing certain stands, I'm not, visually I can't be seen. So you got to always think visual, you know, if I can see it, the deer can see me.
1: Yep. And that's a thing, especially when, especially later in the season, we'll be thinking about that often. Um, Food plot, uh, diversity what i was actually planning i told you what my idea this year was to try to have a diverse blend of things um both from like a soil trying to build up that soil I'm trying to do some things that are going to help from a soil standpoint but then also provide a diver- diverse buffet that'll last you know all through the season and then continue on into the spring and smother weeds and then i can replant some stuff in there trying to develop a, a uh, not cycle but a rotation yeah that'll work well so as i described to you i've got a blend of brassicas a variety of turnips uh, greens, uh, radishes, then some annual clovers, some winter wheat, some oats, some cereal rye. That kind of smorgasbord approach is what I'm trying this year. I've, not, I've never gone that diverse before. I've usually done like strips of brassica, strips of oats. It's worked mm-hmm. great, but I'm yep. trying this new deal. Yeah. Uh, thoughts on that?
4: You know, I've, I've done both. I've done the strips, individual strips. Over the years, I've combined them more just to basically have different diversity because one product is more attractive at this time of the year and two weeks later. Now the oats are right and they're on the oats. So I, so what I'm trying to do is keep deer in the same exact field feeding in the same locations. They're just feeding on different species. Yeah. And I'm a I'm a blend and mix guy. I like it. I think what you just told me is really good. Those okay. annual clovers are very nice. I've had really good luck with your crimson clover and yep. that, that type. And, you know, not only... Uh, not only is it awesome in the fall, but in your spring, I know you're a turkey hunter. Mm -hmm. That crimson clover comes back up in the spring. The deer, not only deer, but your turkeys will be in there. They'll be strutting. Turkeys will be picking on it. You know, it's the first place for bugs to show up because it it blooms pretty early in the season. True. But yeah, I I think that's a really good idea. But you can only do that for so many years, and then you want to move into something else. So always rotate. Mm. And ultimately, you want some... You want some perennial, some perennial yeah. clovers and, and chicory. And, and I'm, the, you know, I use that that very high level, 60% chicory to 40% hmm. uh, clover. clover.
1: Why so much chicory? And,
4: and Because I have found that the bucks just go nuts over it. Huh. They just feed themselves. I've got, you've seen those small little plots. Yes, yeah. And you, you know, it, it's just amazing to see how many bucks feed in those small chicory plots all fall long.
1: Interesting. I, I never, I've actually never planned chicory, never experienced it. Oh, man. No. So I, I've got
4: one right now. It's a little over an acre, and there are, you know, not only are the does and fawns, but there's a lot of bucks in it
1: right well, now. Interesting. You know, they're hitting it pretty hard. So this takes us, sounds like our food plot plan is, is okay. We're going to test it out. We're going to see how things work with access and exit. That'll be our, like, touch and go situation. I think yeah. that's, like, a big crux of the whole season is how we're going to be able to get in and out of there. If we can get away with it, if we can pull it off, I think we'll be able to hold some deer. I think we'll have some success. Yeah. If we we're blowing deer out every yeah. time, then so we're going to have to change things up. Well, I'll take be your,
3: good. I'll be uh, five yards off the road. So Josh maybe. will be
1: safe on the road. <laughs>
4: and uh, if there's any advice I can tell you, I've seen when it comes to paying attention to details, planning your food plots is where you need to pay attention to details. Yeah. You've done your soil test. You know you know where things sit. Yeah. So plant the right, the right blends. Uh, take the time to eliminate competition as best yeah. as you can. Um,
1: because without doing that, it'll be a failure. And you said in, in, in most of those fields, especially field four and five, heavy in mare's tail, which yeah. is uh, tough to deal with, invasive weed that in many places developing glyphosate resistance. Yes. So, Roundup resistance. Yeah. Um, your thoughts for dealing with that were?
4: Well, you know, uh, 2,4 D is a broadleaf selective and will kill mare's tail very well regardless of the age. And the trouble with glyphosate or Roundup is they say, and I've experienced it, when your mare's tail starts getting 8, 10 inches tall, it's very hard to kill, and and sometimes you you can hit it, it'll turn yellow, but it just won't die. The trouble with using 2,4-D to kill it at this time of the year is you will get some residual, which means it, it resides in the soil, you can put seed in the ground, it'll germinate, it'll come up, grow a little bit, and die. If it happens to be a broadleaf, now it wouldn't yep. bother any of your grains, but it would bother your chicories and your brassicas, and your, or and your uh, your uh, annual clover too. Yep. So you might have a waiting game. So I guess the sooner you can get in there and mow those openings, yep. uh, or just go in there first and spray that mare's tail and try and kill it, but realize you're going to have about two weeks. As long as you follow the lab- what the label tells you. you no know, more is not always Before better. Before yeah. planting, <laughs> you know, follow yeah. that label. So that puts you, you know, you might be looking at the third week of August or later before you plant. That's not too late for your grains. And and sure, you're not going to get huge brassicas, but you can go with kales and rapes and things like that. And still have a a whole bunch of forage.
1: Yep. Or the other alternative would be to mow it all right now and spray it with glyph.
4: Yep. Just mow it and spray it with glyph. And and
1: then we could plant right away.
4: Get your seed in the ground and just take what you
1: got. See, my issue is that it's just a funky situation. I don't have my mower yet. So I can't mow right now to do that. I could spray with 2,4-D right now, but I wanna—I don't want to film until I've got, like, you know, the guys that are oh, like yeah, helping yeah. us. Yep. We're, we're trying to film it. So I'm trying to line up the timing of, like, I don't know. I, I might have to do the—we might need to do the mowing and the glyph because I could do that all in one day. Yep. And we're not going to have the mower for, like, a week. But at that point, I can mow, I could spray, and then we could plant— the next day if we wanted maybe we just knock yeah. it all out in yeah. one day or two yep. that's probably going to be what I'm going to have to do yeah.
4: yeah you can go right behind Gly and, and plant
1: Yep. and you're going to be using a drill too
3: right yeah now, Yeah. Where, so you're, drill.
1: you're in good shape there. knock on wood if somehow that falls through then I don't know what man. I'm going to do I'm calling you Jake and <laughs> uh-huh. trying hey, to yeah. see what kind of magic you can pull out of the air oh man <clears throat> um, but we're in field four no for field five we're at the bottom of the hourglass there's another gap in the thick, brushy fence rows. And now, okay, we're let's look at our pot again. We're holding our Oklahoma pot. We've been in the middle of the pot. Now we're about to enter the bottom of the pot. Yeah, the bottom of the pot. The bottom of the pot, let's envision, uh, if you're looking at your pot, you look at the bottom, now put a line through it vertically to split that bottom portion of the pot. The left side of the bottom of the pot is this big, brushy ridge system which we'll talk about, the right side of that pot is another field. It's field six. Let's talk about the field six first, and then we'll move to the ridge system last. Okay. So field six is um, blocked from the food plot system by another one of those brushy tree rows, fence rows, and then there's a, a small gap. And that small gap in the fence or I planted in a screen that actually did come in pretty decent. That one does look pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I think by the time hunting hunting season comes through, that gap will be mostly blocked by that screen. So visually deer in field six at the bottom of the pot, they're not going to be able to see much that's going on in the main food plot system. So it kind of nicely keeps that back section secluded. Field six, I originally had this idea, Jake, and I told you this earlier today, but we'll spell it out again. This is the very farthest point on the property from my access. So it's the hardest spot to get to without blowing stuff up. It also is right next to a neighboring property owner that I know hunts that has a tree stands right in the edge, has yeah. trail cameras right in the edge. Um, so, and it also is adjacent to that ridge system I just talked to that had lots of great bedding and habitat just looked really great. So I thought to myself, maybe I should just leave field six untouched, make it part of the sanctuary because it's hard to get to anyways. If that all if that grew up into great, you know, head high vegetation this summer and I also thought I'll plant some some kind of strips of winding screen cover there just to break it up more and add some more of structure and stuff. Man, that could be awesome. Additional bedding, sanctuary, whatever. Visually will block the neighbor that hunts on the edge from the rest of the property. That was my idea coming into the summer. Did all that, got back from my Western trip in August, went out there and looked at it. The screens failed, the vegetation itself throughout most of the field did not grow very tall at all. I mean, some places only knee high. Um, So it didn't really achieve much at all of what I originally thought it would. That's the circumstance we have now. That's what you saw. Um, Given what you're seeing now, can you walk us through your recommendations for what to do with this maybe three acre field-ish of maybe knee high to thigh high mare's tail and stuff?
4: So clearly, it looked like it was gravelly, sandy soil. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much probably explains why everything is low to the ground. You know, no organic matter, well-drained, not holding any moisture, mm-hmm. less nutrients. So you're just not getting the, the spectacular growth like you get in the other fields. Yeah. So because of that, you know, you don't even want to think about trying to grow anything in there because of the soil building that's ahead of you. Yeah. Okay? If you were to here for 20 years, that'd be one thing. But uh, you could, though, go in there... Uh, And do some herbicide treatment and prepare it for warm season grasses and probably get some real and create sanctuary and then move towards the north side of that next to that fence row that divides field six and field five and put a small little food plot in that low area that parallels that fence row. Yep. And not that you'd ever—you might put one stand down in there, but it would just be a great attraction, and it would hold more deer farther away from your neighbor. Not your neighbor's going to kill some deer; he's going to see some deer. I mean, that's just all part of the deal. He's got a big ag field right over there. But it would create—it would answer the the problem for you for taking that field and doing something strategic with it, turning it into bedding. You know, most the time around here, year three, your switchgrass, big blue stems going to do pretty good and I know your blue stems going to grow well because you've got some growing in different yep.
1: places there already. Talk about that idea of mixing in some other stuff with your warm season grasses to get some better height and cover in the first couple of years before your grasses reach Yeah those. so uh,
4: a technique I tried several years ago I've shared it with a number of different clients and friends of mine and that is When you're planting your warm season grasses, you plant them at the regular rate you're going to plant them. And then you come in and you replant over the top of them with Sudan sorghum grass, which is very inexpensive. It's fairly thin. It doesn't stand up to snow and wind and rain and ice like these big hybrid sorghums and Egyptian wheat. But it creates a great cover and it allows your warm season grasses to not have any other competition other than that Sudan grass. So your second year of switchgrass, big blue stem, Indian grass that you have that you're growing will come up really good and not not fight the broadleaf like the mare's tail and the goldenrod and pigweed and it's going in, in all the other fields. Yep. But, and the great thing is the first year you've got eight feet of cover.
1: Yeah, I like that. And
4: and you get a real good feel for how you can approach and things you can do and carving out that little food plot down along that fence row and. You know, if I if I was to plant that down in front where your access is, you could probably hide yourself from that small little food plot. Yep. So it's worked out real good. Sure, you've got some debris the second year, the dead sorghum goes through the frost. It's gonna lay on the ground, but that but the switchgrass and blue stem or whatever it is you plant is gonna come up through there and just really do well. And I've seen year two four foot switchgrass grown that
1: That's way. That's great. Can you walk through just how to plant warm season grass like that because that's a little bit of a process right it's there's several steps
4: and the most important thing to remember about warm season grasses is they do not like competition so it's all about preparation and it's kill and kill and kill and you what your goal is to try and remove the existing seed bank whatever is banked in that soil there are seeds that are not germinating but will anytime that soil is disturbed something germinates. I mm-hmm. don't care if it's a drill, because the drill still is going in there with cutters and sure. opening a gap, putting a seed down, covering it back up. But you're still disturbing it. Right. So the one thing I learned with warm season grasses is, is preparation. And a lot of guys follow the midsummer spray all the way through fall. So in the fall, you've got this bare, open field with absolutely no Taylor, cover. That, that pains me. I, and it pains me to go through that <laughs> process. But then you can go in there in the spring with zero competition, put in your seed. And some guys frost seed and things like that as well.
1: So you think the best thing to do would be actually go in there and start spraying it now. And so it'll be dead this fall. Yeah. If you you
4: want a really good looking stand of warm season grasses, the best thing you can do is start killing now. And you do two sprays this year. You do one now, probably come back, do one in mid-September more towards october they say that's the most beneficial kill you can have out of the entire
1: season is doing that kill so what if i don't care about looks i'm all about personality yeah. <laughs> what what happens if i just you're more like me yeah. i <laughs> like the... i can't give that up <laughs> what that's if i, still I just cover. what if i just spray in the spring or yeah. if i and, come in list'll get it
4: yeah and you're going to you'll have multiple sprayings in the spring okay. and and often what is done is you spray let it come up turn green spray again then a light disc, say two-inch disc, okay. just disturb the soil. And your goal is to disturb it, open up that seed bank, make it germinate, okay. let it get up four spray or five inches, spray it again. Same thing, kill, give it another. And and that will get you to late June, early July planting time. And And when I did mine, that was four kills. Wow. And I planted on the last day of June, and now if you saw my... My fields are just, man, they're eight feet tall and they are beautiful. I did a burn this spring and that always enhances it the following year.
1: So, So, uh, okay. So, in the spring, I do this multiple kill. Yeah. Let it come back, spray, let it come back, lightly disc. Now it comes back, kill it. It Gets me to late June or early July. We drill in all of our warm season grasses in July. I overseed with some Sudan sorghum grass or sorghum. Was it sorghum? Is it sorghum Sudan? Yeah. I think
4: it's sorghum Sudan.
1: I always yeah, get it mixed I'm up. I'm not sure. It's I, been a long time since I bought it. <laughs> so I oversee it with that. That first year, you're telling me I could have eight-foot-tall sedan grass plus three-foot-tall switchgrass. Yeah,
4: yeah, that's what I had.
1: I like that yeah, idea for I've got year. old
4: pictures of mine when I first did mine. I wish I'd have done my entire 15 acres that way. I only did just a couple
1: acres that way. Yeah, I bet you that'd, yeah. be, that'd be really nice. And yeah. even, even portions of Field 3, the one that's close to that house there, yeah. That's not, it's very similar right. to field six. Do the same they thing. Block yeah.
4: that area completely off.
1: Yep. That yeah. could be pretty cool in warm season grasses like that. Um, okay. That's and again, that's six. a
4: completely diverse type of habitat. Uh, the does love it for fawning in the spring. It's great rutting cover. Right. And it's very random. You know, the only way it becomes define is if you go in there
1: and mow trails right then they're going to
4: follow those trails right through that warm season grass
1: just like what i think will be cool is if we were to have that we'd have several fields with warm season grass we'd have several fields with a very diverse blend of pigweed pokeweed goldenrod some mare's tail there might be some things we can do to manage that maybe do some selective sprayings or i don't know maybe eventually we'll want to do a prescribed burn through some of those and and get it to regrow Yeah. yeah um And then, so you have that kind of habitat. You'll have the warm season grass habitat. You have some wetland habitat. You'll have all, I mean, there's a whole slew of different things in that sanctuary swamp. You saw all sorts of different types of vegetation in there. And then, you know, three acres of food. Then we've got these brushy fence rows full of lots of red oaks. It's got acorns. Um, We found some other soft mass in the next location we're going to walk to. Um, So it's a pretty nice, diverse blend of habitat across this. It is. And one of the best things is
4: every... Every next field we go to is all that additional edge. Man, there's a lot of
1: edge on that yeah. farm. And all animals were like edge, yeah. especially deer. Especially
4: yeah. deer. They, they key in on edges. Yeah, they
1: really do. Yep. So we're at the bottom right corner of our pot, which was the field number six. We're going to go to the bottom left section of the pot, which is the ridge system, which is the Taj Mahal of the farm, I think, oh, in man. certain ways. This was, like, we, when we arrived at the property, I asked you, like, when you see the spot you like the very most, let's sp- spend some extra time there and walk through exactly how you'd set it up, how you'd hunt it, what your thoughts are. And I, I said to Josh, I'm like, I bet you I know the spot. And this is the same as everyone of my friends that I've walked through and checked it out, we're all like, oh, this looks like <laughs> something you see in, like, a TV oh, show. yeah. So I'll, I'll outline, like, the high level of what it is, and then I want to – you know, hear some more of your thoughts on what you like about it. But basically, if you imagine these fields we've been been describing to you that are in the pot part of the property. So this is the far eastern side of the property, fields four, five, and six. Most of those fields are up high. And then again, it drops down into the middle of the property, which is where our big swamp is. Going from field six, the bottom right of our pot, it goes down to the Swamp, and there's this ridge system that connects it. And that ridge system is a kind of blend of tall grasses, cedars. Um, there's a bunch of buckthorn that you talked about. There's some um, autumn olive or something similar to it. Autumn olive in there. Um, scattered s- other small trees. I mean, just a whole lot of different cover types in there with these little openings, grassy openings. Um, when I walked in the first time, and you said it's funny, you said the exact same thing. You said this looks like something you'd see like on a Drury video,
2: mm-hmm. with
1: all these like scattered trees, cedars, and grasses, and just like looks bucky. And when I got in there in March, I remember going underneath, looking underneath these cedars, and there's just scrapes around all of them. All this, all these old cedar trees are just rubbed up from every year getting oh, yeah. hit. Um, and then we went in there today. Walk me through what you saw when we walked in there, what you thought about this whole little ridge system.
4: So, so as we entered, and there was like an old tractor gap or something We yep. went in there, and the first thing I noticed was the warm season grasses. You know, yeah. they were, There was big blue stem, and it was all seven, eight feet tall. It yep. just looked beautiful in there. And as soon as I got into the opening, the first thing I noticed, I said, holy smokes, you got a pear tree right here. Yeah. And there was a, a pear pretty loaded with pears. Yeah. Not a big pear, but I'm 8, 10-inch diameter, probably yeah. something 25 years old. Well, man, a mass tree right there, and, and deer love pears. Yeah. And then 15 yards uh, west of it was a, a really nice red oak yep. loaded with acorns. Yep. And warm season grasses, six, seven feet tall all the way around it. But it was slowly dropping down yep. towards your swamp. And then we came to a large cedar tree, had last year's big rubs on it, and there was Three well-used beds all the way around it, underneath those overhanging limbs, and I yep. would imagine based on time of day and wind direction, you got one lone deer bedding in there, and it just—it was a big deer. It was all flattened down. It's being used a lot.
1: Probably a nice and buck.
4: Right? I would, I would bucks, guess. You know. Yeah, probably a buck laying in there. Yeah, like seeing that. And you had some. You had some mixed uh, cherry trees in there was some autumn olives down at the base and a little buckthorn here and there that kind of broke it up and, and really compartmentalized it. But there was two definite lines of movement in there. And, and it just looked like, depending on the time of the year and the wind, there's two places I would hang stands, one in particular. And if you can't have an encounter here, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Because the signs there, there's historic sign from year after year before with all these old rubs. You know that's that's the action spot. Right
1: so there. yeah. So what's the situation When you would hunt that? Walk me through. So I would hunt
4: that. I would definitely wait for that late October, early November uh, pre-rut time period, seeking phase. Okay, And that would be uh, myself, post-cold front, high pressure. So you're going to have a northwest wind, north wind. Um, I'm going to go in in the morning. I'm going to plan on hunting all day. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to stay all day or until I kill him.
1: Yep. And we're thinking, you're thinking these deer are doing what? they're doing they a lot of cruising.
4: Down. There's 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 socialization because there's rubs and scrapes. So you probably sometimes have different bucks of different age classes kind of you know look at me, you know man, I'm 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 you know I'm I'm big boy on campus, yep. you know. My antlers are bigger than your antlers yep. sort of thing. <laughs> a lot of scraping, a lot of scent communication because of the scraping. And then just that incredible cover and the way that was compartmentalized everything from the warm season grasses, the buckthorn, the autumn olive there's not one spot there that deer can see a whole lot farther in about 20 to 30 yards mm-hmm. in any direction. But it had nooks and crannies and a lot of edge. Yeah. And I think with the, with the, the slope, uh, I, it makes for great bedding for the afternoon. I think it's probably very good from a scent wind. Anything out of the west and southwest, deer can enter regardless of the end and scent check that.
1: And you would want, do you think the smartest way to hunt that would be to primarily hunt with your wind blowing, back behind you over the dead field.
4: So you're going to try and uh, get yourself down on the southeast corner of that area. Yep. Get yourself in one of those bigger trees, use cover to hide yourself, yep, so that bucks will be entering and moving. Their goal is to get down to that southeast end and use their nose to scent check everything from does to competition. And they're going to rub and scrape while you're there, too. That's the cool part. Yeah. You know, you may it may antagonize you to
3: watch a deer for an hour Mm -hmm. (laughs) before you can get a shot, you know. which is really tough, okay? <laughs> let me, let me. I want to back up for a second. Well, it ties into this. How would planting warm season grasses in that backfield affect how you would hunt that spot? Does, I, I does don't, that
4: particular spot, because of the cedars, because of that slope, is unique for what it is. I think those warm season grasses behind us in field six would not change okay. how that gets used it's just another place yeah. for especially does does yeah. really like those warm season grasses for putting you know putting their fawns in there in the spring and i'm not going to say there isn't some rutting activity that will take place in there but that you know you're focused you know, and this is primarily all bow hunting for you right yeah so you know our well, shots so. are short yeah. Yeah. yeah so whatever's going on 60 yards behind you who cares yeah okay
3: yeah i just want to sure, like yeah. if we're wanting to blow the wind back over that dead field right now is if you start. And it's
4: just going to cut, yeah. you know, the way that yeah. tree that we, that we looked at, Yep, not a whole lot of your scent with a Northwest wind is going to end up in that yeah. field. You're yep. just going to go across that one corner. Yeah. Yep.
1: Heading towards the yeah. neighbors. and then So maybe them. you yep.
4: take that corner and don't put any warm season grass in yep. right there.
1: Kind of leave it open. Yep. Yeah. I just think, think it's a good, it's open. a good setup. That, that early November, a... right conditions, set there, and mm-hmm. oh, man. big boys got to cruise through.
4: Definitely. And there was, you know, I mean, I saw some rubs on different cedar trees. It just looked, It's trying to heal. I'd say for the last 10 years, those trees have been rubbed. Yeah. So that's a really good sign. That tells me the big boys cruise through there often. Yeah.
1: That was the deal. Yeah. That was the deal maker for me. When I walked into that section, it was like the last part of the property I got to, and I stepped into the edge there and just— my jaw kind of dropped. And I was like, oh, yes. Yeah.
4: You saw that. You said, it all works now. Yeah,
1: if it all yeah. – yeah. Everything I've been seeing was getting me more and more excited. Then I got into that and like, yeah, this is this is cool. Yep. So that's the basic gist of the property. And that's the basic gist of kind of your thoughts after seeing yeah. what we saw. Yeah. Um, so when we when we got done with it all, we did, we did a little more of a circle around. You saw more field four. But it was essentially just looking at where the food plot system was. Yep. I walked in that edge, seeing what's on the neighbors and whatnot. Um, after having seen it all now, thought through or heard through our ideas, thought through your own ideas, um, can you give me a couple of, like, your big to-dos? Or, like, if we were, if yep. if you had walked the property and we were, like, a paying client and you're going to say, hey, this is the couple things you could do to make this better. Yeah. What would a couple of those things be?
4: You know, the one thing you don't have on that property is winter thermal cover. Yeah. And that's a big deal. I mean, look at last winter. We had, gosh, how many days of 20 below zero? There were some days. And so, whitetails are looking for a place to get out of the wind and, and stay warm. So, uh, if you were a paying client and you were going to hang on to this for the next 40 years, instead of warm season grasses in field six, I'd say put some white spruce and Norway spruce in there and turn yeah. that into a conifer sanctuary.
1: Yeah, that would be cool.
4: And boy, would you have a place to find sheds.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. That's like uh, a ten year play. There it like to is. I mean, it, it, right? it's a
4: it's an investment in time. Yeah. It really is. And you're you know, trees are dying. It's just part of the life. You're yep. always replacing them. But 10, 15 years down the road, everything now is 10, 12 feet tall. Yeah. You're gonna now. You're gonna the the area that we said is oh man, look look at this spot. Now you're going to create another one in there. You're going to have a little opening because you're going to plant those trees instead of in rows. I always recommend doing it in a more random pattern, which is more like nature. Sure. So you'll have some little openings that will show up in there, and you'll have another spot that you can throw a stand in and have that, well, okay, it didn't work real good over here this morning. I'll go over here. I'll hunt this one tomorrow.
1: Yeah. I'll kill him there. (laughs) That would be cool. You know?
4: And, uh, your, although cool. I still don't, I don't think you're going to mess that one spot up too bad. <laughs> don't
1: don't jinx me. <laughs> I, I,
4: I, I, I see you killing something pretty I good hope there. So.
1: Yeah, I hope I so. I think so. So add some thermal uh-huh. cover.
4: So that's really important to have some thermal cover. And then as the years go by, because I really don't have a good handle on your deer density. Yeah. You had some browse lines that were obvious. Yep. So there may be more deer there than I think. But as you grow food, one thing that happens is you concentrate deer. Sure. So maybe year two and three, you have more mouths to feed, so you might have to look at another location that you're going to just stay away from, and you're just going to grow food. Yeah. You're not going to hunt it. It's just all about producing
1: food. Okay.
4: And then the takeaway, in any of your dry ground where you've got autumn olive, buckthorn, a combination of buck brush, all the stuff around the edges of your, your sanctuary swamp. Uh-huh. Get in and clear those trails and open up locations so deer can move and cut some trees here and there to get some early successional growth yeah. so you can get young cherries, young, young maples, young oaks coming up because it's important to have a lot of food for deer to eat in that swamp Yep. In late in the season instead of early in the spring like it always is. When yeah. everything turns brown, other than a few acorns, they don't have a whole lot to eat down yeah. there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... I think coming out of like our day to day, I feel more confident. I feel more excited about certain locations that I was already excited about, but getting, you know, another set of eyes on it has me that much more ready and raring to get after that. I feel like much more confident about my ideas around what to do with some of those mare's tail fields. Now that we've talked through our warm season grass ideas, Um, I'm glad that my food plot idea seems not horrible and on point. I think that's going to be a little bit of a learning experience. We're going to see how it works out this year, and yep. we'll, we'll adjust on the screens. Um, but, man, this has just been really helpful, eye-opening in a lot of ways, and fun. For sure. This is a day. Yeah. So if I
4: could give you one more tip, just thinking about that food plot, yeah. where that pinch point crosses the fence row.
1: Uh, which one those, are we talking about?
4: Of those two food plots, where the narrowest oh, part It yes. yep. okay, crosses from field four and five. Yes. So that's a fairly wide fence row, five yards wide. There's yep. some trees, there's some brush. You're definitely going to clear that out so deer can move through there a little Make bit. Make a path through there, yeah. That would be an ideal location for a licking branch. I like that. Every deer is going to come through. They're pinching in anyways, yep. and they're going to stop and use it. Yep. And it's a lot easier to kill a deer that's standing still yeah, with a yep, bow yep. than one that's moving.
1: I definitely, <laughs> I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, that's going to be a cool little setup. I think it, what, one of the big things I'm interested in seeing is, is what kind of mature buck activity we'll get during daylight in those fields. Will they feel comfortable moving out there, or will, they st- will it still be too open for a four-year-old yeah. buck to come out there? Will our, will our mature buck encounters be happening in the swamp, on the edge of the swamp, in the honey hole spot, or will we get October 28th, I set that hourglass pinch point, and a nice buck does come yeah. out and follows a yeah. doe to there?
4: and here's what something i'll let you kind of chew on um right now we don't know what those deer are like what kind of encounters they've had elsewhere um how how they are about your odor but if you were if you said four years from today and there was a button buck that's running around there right now a young buck and all he knows is that food plot when he's four he'll be in that food plot yeah because that's home to him. Yeah. That's all yep. he knows. You might have a buck this year walks in there, maybe just cruises through three times a year in the fall, yep. Cruising for for getting dates and he sees those openings, and he's like, Oh my gosh. But usually if there's girls hanging around, they don't think it's such a bad idea. Yeah.
1: If we if we play it smart, hopefully yep. keep it feeling safe for them. I yep. think it's yeah, I think and, there's a chance.
4: Yep. And you know, work on your scent control. Yep. You know how important that is.
1: Yeah, you're gonna have to play it real well. Yeah. Entering and access is gonna have to be real, real smart. But uh my my thoughts in the beginning are still the same, which is if we do things right, it can be great. Oh yeah! And if we hunt it smart, it has all the pieces it needs to be really good.
4: It, it really does. It's got all the potential to be just as good as my place, yeah, or better. Which because okay, you're in the right part of the state. Which is state. saying something, yeah,
1: because you got yeah. a great spot. Well, Jake. Thank you.
4: Hey, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thank you You're so welcome, much. Mark. It was a lot
1: of fun. Thanks, Jake. Same if, thing,
4: Josh. Yep, had a great folks, time hanging out with you.
1: If folks are looking for this kind of help for themselves, they'd like to learn more about what you've got going on. Where should they? Where should they go uh, to learn or to get in touch with you?
4: Uh, website, Facebook, and YouTube. Habitat Solutions Three Hundred and Sixty LLC.
1: Perfect. That's easy. Yeah. Well, go check it out, folks. Jake has got lots of helpful things out there. He's just—I mean, as you can tell from listening—amazing guy. Very knowledgeable, very helpful. Hit him up and he will help put you in position for a great hunting season. All right. Thanks, Jake. And that is a wrap. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this one. I cannot wait for you to see all the new stuff that's going to come out of this project. As we mentioned in that introduction with Steve and Giannis, if you head over to com slash win a hunt, you can sign up to win a hunt with me and Steve on the Back 40 property. And very soon, we are going to have a new video series on the Meteor YouTube channel. We're going to have new articles and a whole lot of our podcast content. We'll have updates on the project, stories from the project. Um, You know, this time of year, we're not going to spend too much time in actual land management um, conversations on the podcast because a lot of us are actually out there hunting. But definitely in the off season, there's going to be a lot of interesting things we'll be diving into as well. So make sure you are checking all those things out, the Wired and Instagram account is going to have a lot of updates and Instagram stories and real-time uh, updates as well. So follow along. Thank you. And until we chat next time, stay
0: wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill.